0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
1: All right. Well, very good morning. Uh, I guess everybody certainly aware that we had a front come through last night. Boy, there's a lot of, a lot of lightning up in the clouds. Uh, thankfully, not a whole lot of cloud-to-ground lightning. Uh Things are still so dry out there. It's kind of scary living in a big dry patch of the hill country when you start seeing and hearing uh, lightning and thunder. But uh, it just some people around got a good rain. My engineer tells me uh, out toward Shirts, they got a real good rain. Up toward uh, Kendalia, a little over a third of an inch. Uh, Bernie, where I live, is zero. <laughs> I just hope I'm in line for the next. Next good rain that comes through, maybe toward the end of this next week. But uh, looking better. It's nice to know that it can rain. A little bit cooler this morning and uh, not supposed to get quite as hot today. So maybe we're finally moving away from that blistering summer weather and into a little bit more of our more typical fall weather. Anyway, what is of interest to you guys is uh, much more important than the things that I want to talk about. And looks like Clint and Carl and Chris uh, three C's lined up there. Uh, that's where we start this morning, and Clint's up first. Good morning, Clint.
2: Good morning. How's it going?
1: Well, it's going okay. Did one of those rain clouds move over you last night?
2: I heard stories about those, but I I don't know. <laughs> it's been so long.
1: <laughs> it, uh, I was I was disappointed when I went out this morning and everything was totally dry, but I uh, talked to my partner, and she got a little over a third of an inch, and uh Uh, Apparently, some areas around got a pretty good rain here at the nursery. They're big puddles, so uh, I guess it just depended on which clouds you were under. But it looks looks like at least we've got a little bit uh, cooler air mass moving in, so it's going to make all those things that we need to do outside a little more comfortable. I'll take that any day.
2: Amen. What's going on this morning? Uh, Talk to me about Garrett Juice. How do I make it and how is shelf-stable and all that other good stuff?
1: Well, Garrett juice is not an exact formulation. It's sort of an idea that Howard Garrett came up with, um, and he he bases it on. He calls it compost tea, but I don't think he fully, you know, grasps the difference between compost tea and compost leachate. So I think it's usually compost leachate that he's starting with, which in this case is probably better because it doesn't not overstimulated with microbes. And then it's a matter of adding things that you think will make it better. It's sort of like making compost tea, in effect, but, you know, none of the bubbling involved. But he starts with basically a compost leachate. One of the things that he considers essential is some apple cider vinegar. Uh, But beyond that, adding a bit of liquid humates, adding a bit of seaweed, adding a bit of molasses, adding a bit of liquid fish, all of those things go into, you know, making a, a Batch of Garrett juice, so to speak. Now, uh, I'd have to ask Stuart Frankie exactly what uh, all he puts in. He bottles the, uh, you know, the commercial garret juice for Howard, and uh, I'm not sure, you know, which of those things he includes or leaves out. And uh, uh, Howard was saying somehow they wind up with some Michael Rizey in there, which is, has to be something that uh, Stuart added, but one of those things you don't put on the label because then the state makes you. Spend a bunch of money proving that it's actually in there. But uh, garage juice can vary. If it's uh, a time of the year that you feel like uh, you really would like to get more minerals in there, you could add some of the micronized azomite. And, of course, you have to keep that agitated. If it's in the fall and you're really wanting to increase your cold hardiness, uh, then liquid seaweed would be a very important part of it. But the exact proportions, once you get beyond the compost leachate base and the uh, apple cider vinegar, um, it can vary according to your needs and uh, what you have on hand. So, uh, and, and by all means, go to dirtdoctor.com, and I think you'll read much the same thing. But it's it's not a static recipe. It's uh, uh, it, 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 he just he came up with the idea. Uh, applied the name to it and then realized, hey, you know, different times of the year, different situations, Uh, we're going to add a little more of some things, maybe a little less of others. So I can't really tell you exactly how to make it because there is no exact way to make it, but those are the kinds of things that uh, he would put in. Now, there are other things, of course, that you could add. You could add uh, uh, more liquid humates. You could add, gosh, you know, a number of different things, but... Um, it's it's based around those ingredients. You decide on the proportions. <laughs> I'm going to go overboard, then. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, the the uh. nice thing about most organic products is that they don't react with each other. These guys that are mixing chemical stuff together, you got to worry whether some of it's going to form a solid uh, solid form and precipitate out. You have to worry if uh, one of the chemicals in there is going to neutralize the effect of the other. just doesn't work that way, as you well know, with organics. Most of these things work together very well. Now, you know, we don't want to add a lot of hydrogen peroxide or something like that uh, to something that where we might mess up the microbial life in there, but uh, when it comes to things like seaweed, humates, liquid fish, things like that, uh, they don't re- react with each other, so um, you can juggle the proportions up and down to what seems to work best in your garden,
2: so i I'm guessing maybe like a five gallon bucket full. I don't know about a cup of each one of those ingredients since I guess I couldn't overdo it or two cups if you're going to um if
1: you're gonna apply it immediately, I would say that would be fine, otherwise, I wouldn't go so heavy on the liquid molasses because you will overstimulate it and have the same problem you have with your compost tea. If you overstimulate it, it runs out of oxygen and goes anaerobic. So I, I think that would be great with the fish. I think it would be great with the seaweed. Uh, I think it would be, that's you know, that's more liquid humates than you really need. But um, the, the, the molasses is really, I guess, the only thing I'd be careful not to overdo because you don't want to overstimulate the microbial activity if it's going to be a little while before you, put it out. Now, if you're making up that five-gallon bucket and you're going to put it out ten minutes later, yeah, go ahead and put a, a cup of uh, molasses in there. But that, that's the only thing that I would have any hesitation about overdoing.
2: Well, I was thinking more of a five-gallon bucket so everything can be hit really good and then have at least a gallon reserve, as he did in his video. Uh-huh. Uh, to come back later throughout the year or within a couple months and stuff. So, yeah. if you know for that case, maybe I would not add any molasses until I go to use it. That probably would be a
1: real good idea. Would be a real good idea. But as you know, it, it what does it take? Less than five minutes to mix those things together in a bucket. I guess you need to uh, soak your compost tea overnight. But uh, even without the molasses, you leave it sitting that long. And some of the more delicate microbes are going to go away. Now, about half the microbes that wind up in compost tea or compost leachate have a resting state. And if you stress them, they'll simply go into that resting state where they can stay for years. But the other half I don't have a resting state. And if things get to the point they don't like it, they just fold up and die. And so I'm, you know, I, I'm not one to leave things mixed up and... uh uh, like I say, what does it take, five minutes to combine those uh, things in a bucket once you've got your compost leachate made? So I'm probably going to make it fresh every time I do it. But, hey, whatever works in on your fields and in your garden, uh, do it. Uh, it's like my old days in the electron microscope lab. I'd go to the director because what we were doing was just cutting edge, was brand new, and I'd say uh, – Hey, Vanita, I did this, this, and this. Is that right? And she would say, well, did it work? And I said, yeah, it worked great. And she said, okay, that's right. So anyway, uh, judge by your results and follow up from there.
2: Okay, now for the azomite, you said it never go, dissolves. It just goes in suspension. Is there a good mineral mineralizer out there that will dissolve? No.
1: No, minerals by definition don't dissolve. Um, liquid things and things that uh, are not you know, in basically a rock form. Azomite's a rock. Uh, it's mined and uh, the one thing you want to do if you're using the azomite, of course, there are three different forms of the azomite. There's a very finely ground one that's almost like dust, then there's the one that's uh, granular, and then there's the one that's called field grade, which may have some bigger chunks in it, and you certainly want to get the micronized form because that's what's going to say in suspension the best. Uh, what I use in my garden is mostly the granular form because it's easy to grab a handful and sling it around. But if you're including it in any liquid mix, you want it ground as finely as possible so
2: you get the, the fine ground form of it. Okay. So basically it sounds like the Garrett juice is basically almost a compost tea without bubbling it.
1: Well, it's compost tea with, Yeah, uh, well, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, most of those same things you're putting in there, you would put into a good compost tea, and uh, uh, that's that's a real good observation. We don't normally put the apple cider vinegar in compost tea, but uh, he considers that an essential part of garage juice.
2: Okie And lastly, real quick, I, there's a plant that caught my interest. I think you called it a Mexican bird of paradise?
1: A Mexican bird of paradise, or Cessler's Penia, uh, the common under uh, another common name is Pride of Barbados um golly, if you drive down a street in San Antonio, you can hardly you know go a block without seeing several of them it's just it's a bush that gets uh anywhere from four to six feet tall, bright bright yellow and orange flowers out in the full sun, and um it's just there there there's several different cecillapenas this just happens to be the brightest. And most showy, and I suspect somebody found it on the island of Barbados. I've been there, but i've never seen never seen it down there, but uh, uh, that's my guess is this is probably just a form that came from that part of the Caribbean and is that an absolutely full sun uh, plant or yes sir midday sun
3: okay. Okay.
1: No, it, the more sun, the more flowers I'm thinking something that might be something my wife would really love to have. I bet it would be because you just don't have to do anything. I I've watered mine once this year and it just sits there and blooms. Wow! Of course, it's been in for for six or eight years and it's probably got roots all the way to Bandera County, but uh, uh, it's gone through the twenty-one degree or the uh, twenty-one winter, getting down below ten degrees and come right back out. So tough, hardy plant. Good deal. I appreciate.
2: Okay, well, I appreciate your time.
1: Always a pleasure, Clint appreciate the call you have a good weekend and we'll talk good again and you do the same let me get a quick break in here and then it'll be carl and chris uh looks like i get to change the subject here and talk about dr mark williamson and uh it just you know fits in everybody says why do you talk about uh a dentist an oral surgeon and you know it's just the the better shape you are in physically the more fun gardening is the more fun life is and uh you happen to be a very active person like I am. You just You want everything working properly, and that includes your oral health. In fact, studies have shown that good oral health will add years to your life. Well, Dr. Mark Williamson is a man among men when it comes to the dental profession because he just... He kind of isn't satisfied with what is the norm today. Send them out to a specialist if uh, they have anything at all complex. Well, Dr. Williamson wants to be able to take care of all of your dental needs. That's why he's so broadly trained. That's why he can handle a lot more things right there in his office than uh, your average dentist does. And he's not worried about how many patients he's going to see today. He's not thinking about the person coming in after you. He is focused on you and your needs, whether they are simple or complex. And no guilt. If it's been a while since you've been to the dentist, uh, you know, they're not going to harp on you about that. They're simply going to fix whatever's going wrong, and uh, you're going to feel better, and you're going to feel confident, too. You walk into that office, there's just a different air, different atmosphere there, friendliest staff you'll ever meet anywhere. And just, uh, Dr. Williamson is just, he's just a man among men. He wants to be your friend, not just your dentist. And uh, I think you just, if, if you're looking for a dentist, if you're new to the area, if your dentist is retired, if if you just would like a change, well, I'd sure give a call to the office of Dr. Williamson and Associates. They're located out on Cherry Ridge Drive, conveniently there in northwest San Antonio. Phone number 210-341-2569 is 210-341-2569 for Dr. Williamson and Associates. <music>
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071.
1: All right, let's get straight back to the phone lines. And next in line is Carl. Good morning, Carl.
0: Yeah, hey,
4: Bob. Here's the the situation. I want to uh, uh, have a screen, and what it's going to be is four to six foot tall mound of landscape um, dirt or whatever, about eight to ten foot long. And then mm-hmm. what I want to do is plant some plants on I'm gonna I'm gonna name them. And I want to, once it's I live in Kendall County. A deer issue or a deer or an issue. Okay. I want to do um, um possum hall three on top, uh, thryallis in between those, and then uh, and then start ringing the the mound from there down with uh plumbago, and then I'm gonna go with um lantana and uh, pink uh, salvia, and then below that I'm gonna go with uh, uh purple and trailing uh, lantana with uh. I think it's that uh, real low salvia. That's sort of like a it mound's real low skullcap. Maybe I'm, I'm not really sure what it's called.
1: Yeah. Skull, skullcap isn't a salvia, but it's certainly uh, you know it's certainly a good plant. And uh, so so everybody will think you're an expert. We call that mound of dirt a berm, b e r m. Right. <laughs> so uh, the only yeah. comment that I would tell you is that uh, if the purpose of this is to create a screen realize that possum Hall is going to drop all of its leaves in the winter. Uh, it's a great plant, but uh, you might think of looking at the straight, uh, uh, just no. right of Houston yopon yeah. or something like that, which has the red berries but keeps Correct. its leaves. And uh, uh, other than that, I, you know, you're off to a, a pretty good start. Now, Plumbago, the deer may or may okay. not go after it. It just kind of depends. And as you well know, if you're in Kendall County, the deer are starving this uh this summer, right, and right. they're going to eat things that they don't normally touch. Uh, and by all means, you know, stay as I'm sure you do, a hundred percent organic, because on the I lantanas uh, and and most of, lots of other things, if you start giving them the synthetic fertilizers, they don't produce of those those as much of those aromatic compounds that make the deer avoid them. Um, I know when, when we get Lantana M from a grower that uses commercial fertilizer, it's not deer resistant. you know, probably for two or three months until you switch over and start using the organic fertilizers and it starts making its aromatic compounds. So um, if there's any way that, you know, for the first uh, two, three months, whatever, that you get this planting done, uh, if if you could screen the deer out, the... State uh, Parks and Wildlife folks have a pretty good little three-wire electric system, but um, uh, the things that are always deer-resistant will be things like possum haw, things like the salvia greggii, um, things like a couple of things you didn't mention. There's a beautiful yellow flower called damianita grows wild in the Jeep roads yes. all over my ranch. Yes, um, yes, I know and, and, uh, and I, I definitely want ahead.
4: some lower stuff like that. I, I also mentioned um, I'm going to put some esperanzas in there, some of the, the newer lower ones and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. What about uh, like you know armadillos and stuff uh, uh, rooting up stuff? Probably not until they've been in there and some earthworms come in and stuff. Correct? Like, do I need to sort of protect from
1: that or just the deer? <laughs> You just uh, you're gonna have lots of things that can be an issue. Possums can be an issue. Skunks can be an issue. Raccoons can be an issue because they want to get in there and dig. Right. And right. Uh, right. Okay. armadillos are among the worst because they literally just plow things up, and you're gonna give them yeah. nice soft <laughs> earth to work with. Correct. So. Uh, they're going to think it's a new playground for them, but get some blood meal, just good old dried slaughterhouse blood, probably under the photo, or the high-yield brand, and sprinkle that around. It's a good fertilizer, and armadillos really don't like the taste or the smell of it, and mm-hmm. um, if you're like me, you keep a live trap out just about all the time. Because uh, and I love my Squirrelinator that a friend gave me as a Christmas present. I think it was. But if uh, if squirrels become an issue for you, especially especially the black mountain rock squirrel, this thing does everything it says it does. You can catch six or eight squirrels at a time. And um, anyway, it's it's a good uh, yeah, thing. I have one of those. I have one of those Squirrelinators. It's called a Gammo.
3: <laughs> <television>. Okay.
1: <coughs>
4: yep. But anyway, yeah, perfect. Uh, the, the, the purpose of this is more for um, actually to attract butterflies, um, uh, mm-hmm. hummingbirds, bees, and, and for us to sit out on our front porch and my wife to enjoy it. She wants to possum all.
5: Yeah, I, I yep. know about
4: the, 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 you know, the old pond holly and stuff like that. Uh, and then the only other thing that we're thinking about is periodically or, or annually putting some, like, uh, mist flower. I know that type of stuff will get eaten by deer, too. Uh, well, but, but we,
1: we want to, you know, go ahead. Yeah, mist flower is normally perennial. So it's a good thing to plant out and you can also ah, look at Asclepius, which uh you know, will bring in a lot of butterflies and uh you can even plant oh. zinnias. Uh, I mean the deer will go after those, but they attract butterflies. But um uh cool. if you if you want a really colorful flower to put out that the deer generally avoid, uh it's vinca. Uh it's okay. you know, uh vinca comes and the newer varieties are much more resistant to the diseases that hit the older ones. So look for Cora, C-O-R-A. Cora is one of the, a whole okay. group of them. There's Cora, comes in a lot of different colors. But Vinca is, I in my opinion, probably the most colorful annual you can plant. And unbelievably, it's very deer resistant. So uh, that okay. would be something you can certainly, you know, certainly add in there. But uh, it sounds like, you know, you're getting into a good project and, only problem is once you get your berm done and planted, well, there's going to be a little space for a bed off to the right where we can plant something different, and off to the left we can plant something different. <laughs> and so no, pretty, pretty no. soon you're going to be uh, you're going to be watering a little bit more. Uh, one other plant to uh, look at since this is uh, you know a small pleasure garden is uh, you know what we call this sort of mm-hmm. area you're creating. Uh, but look at pride of Barbados. Uh, it is okay. in the summer months one of the most colorful things you can plant. The deer avoid it. Uh, I, I, like I was saying earlier, mine has been in bloom all summer, and I think I've watered it once and certainly haven't had much rain, and it just sits there and blooms up a storm. No insects, yeah. no diseases, and uh, uh, but it, it's another one that you certainly might look at including uh, in this. sounds like just a real pretty spot you're going to create. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm completely organic. I've been
4: out here for 20 years, and, you know, Lantan is out here not being bothered. And then my last comment is just uh, – uh, you know, I have planted uh, a beauty berry out here. Uh, one mm-hmm. year I planted two in the back and then a couple of years later i play on two in the front and it's interesting that the they're, they're, they look different they're, they're both purple kind but the two in the uh, back look the same the two in the front look the same but anyway my comment is i've had a, a water that uh, uh beauty berry so much this year uh compared to the last year uh in previous uh uh, uh drought years it, 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 it you know
1: it's bad <laughs> it, plan oh yeah and of course i uh, will be we have a groundwater district meeting tomorrow night and uh I hate to see what the what the well levels are going to be. I blue beautyberry to look nice takes water. Uh, if it right. doesn't get water, it's going to hunker down. It's going to drop its leaves. It's not going to do the things, the reasons that you planted it. But it will survive. I I need to get out. The heat's just, it's just been. Oh, so unbearable. It's just not much fun hiking when it's 106 degrees. But mm-hmm. uh, I I need to walk around portions of my ranch where, and, and of course it's a shade-loving plant. It doesn't want to be out in the full sun. But uh, mm-hmm. I need to take a look because I've got a lot of it growing natively up there. I hope by next year uh, we will have available uh, for you uh, a pure white form of beautyberry. We collected some uh, several years ago, and my business partner has uh two or three beautiful plants in her landscape and they've put on a ton of seed this year so uh, he doesn't know it yet but one of my growers is going to get a big bag of seed with a request hey, see what you can do with these and I'm very hopeful uh, because she has always just a handful of seedlings spring up around them and they always come true but put in the hands of a professional I hope we can uh, you know, get started and from then on they can propagate it by cuttings but the pure white form is absolutely beautiful as well and together, you know, throw in some Turk's cap. And you've got, you got—you don't have to stray very far from the native palette. to have some things yeah. that will really make a pretty bed. So, anyway, something to look forward to, and okay. I appreciate the comment, right. too. Thank you. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, Carl. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to Chris here, and then we'll take our next break. Good morning, Chris.
6: Good morning. Let me get you off of Bluetooth and into speaker onto phone. Yeah. What's Isn't going it? on? Hello. Oh, a situation and observation, too, because it's been so hot. All I'm producing on almost all of my uh, squash vines, acorn squash, et cetera, is nothing but male hours. I'm assuming mm-hmm. it's because of the... You're exactly right. Okay. And no females. Okay.
1: Yeah. So if, it, as ooh. long as you can, as long as you're not trouble with the squash vine borers... Uh, we've still got plenty of time to produce female flowers and for you to get some good squash this fall. But uh, I don't know that anybody really knows why that happens. But, yeah, in the heat, it can be squash and cucumbers both uh, seem to produce uh, almost exclusively male flowers. When it cools down a little bit, you'll go back to having both.
6: Okay, that's situation number one. That's what I thought. Situation number two, uh, I have my... Uh, I have my tomatoes wrapped with uh, insulate, mm-hmm. keeping them good. And once they reach above the insulate, foot and a half, two feet, then I can pull the insulate off and put it around something else, correct?
1: Oh, sure. You don't even have to wait for them to get that tall. Once, once they have been in the ground and exposed to what Texas has done to us by, oh, two, three, four weeks, they have adapted to the heat as much as they're going to, Uh, they're not going to mind the wind, the sun, you know, it may bleach the leaves a little bit because it's breaking down the chlorophyll faster than the plant can build it up. But it's just that first two, three, four weeks that they're moved from what was probably a pretty good greenhouse growing environment and thrown out into the hellish weather we've had this summer. Uh, after two, three, four weeks they're they're adapted and you can take your insulate off and use it for something else.
6: Yep. And so yesterday I picked up a bunch of uh, coal plants, and uh, I should protect them, keep them away since they lived in a nice, probably greenhouse somewhere while they were growing.
1: It's not as critical as it is with tomatoes. You know, you feel the leaves on those coal family plants, they're tougher, they're waxier, they're heavier. And uh, you compare that to a thin little leaf on a pepper plant or you know that kind of uh, meaty leaf that a tomato has those guys are going to be much more impacted than your cole family plants are now if they're going from lower light to brighter light yeah you could end up with some sunburn but um they're it'll be good to give them some protection uh but they're they're a little bit tougher plant to begin with so um now for whatever reason of the of the Cole family, I find cauliflower to be the biggest wimps. They're the ones that are most likely to have a problem. Uh, cabbage, broccoli, chard, uh, even Brussels sprouts uh, are, just somehow seem to be a, a little bit more durable plants than cauliflower. So uh, if anything, you might want to wait a week later to plant your cauliflower after you plant the others.
6: Okay, so keep, keep them in a semi-shade like I have right now that gets... You know, good morning sun, but, of course, not the afternoon.
1: Well, do that Do that for a few days, then move them to where they get sun up until 2 o'clock, and then as long as you can keep them watered, uh, you know, you're going to be putting them in full sun or close to full sun in the ground. So uh, just gradually harden them off. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, your skin in the sun in the spring. You go out the first day of spring, and you're going to fry yourself, but if you gradually build up your exposure, not that it's good for you, uh, but you can tolerate it a whole lot better, and your plants are the same way.
6: Yes. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate everyone who calls in to listen forever.
1: <laughs> well, we appreciate it, Chris. And you get out and have a great weekend. Let me get a break out of the way here. There are some open lines. Grab one if you like, 210 599 Get to talk to you about another subject that I love, and that's Wild Birds Unlimited. The subject I love, a place, uh location I love And uh, Wild Birds Unlimited, this is such a, as bad as the summer's been, it's a great opportunity to bring birds into your landscape, and maybe you love them, maybe you've got kids or grandkids out there that you would really like to teach something about nature. Wild Birds Unlimited can help you bring those birds in because there's so little for them to eat in nature right now. Water is so scarce. You give them a good water source, which Wild Birds Unlimited has wonderful bird baths and fountains and even misters. You give them something good to eat. Wild Birds Unlimited has summer blend seed mixes along with the, oh, they have the really hot seed that the squirrels will leave alone. Uh, They've got things that are just you know, specially made for the birds at this time of year. Thistle seed, I was picking up a couple of bags from them uh, uh, just last week, and let me tell you, the goldfinches, uh, especially the blackback lesser goldfinch, just flock to it. And, of course, they have the feeders, many of them with a lifetime guarantee. They have the hummingbird feeders with the built-in ant stopper. Have a solution that will help keep your nectar fresh longer, although right now the hummingbirds are eating so much of it, you're probably going to be refilling the feeder every day. There are lots of reasons to visit Wild Birds Unlimited. And if you need a gift for someone, someone especially who likes nature, what a wonderful place it is to shop. Even if they're not into nature, they're just looking for something beautiful for the landscape. Between the wind chimes and the sun catchers, it, Wild Birds Unlimited is just a place you have to visit periodically because their inventory changes. Now, all your Wild Birds Unlimited stores have their basic Wild Birds Unlimited merchandise, but each individual store selects their own gift merchandise. I love the job that Kyle and his staff do out there on Northwest Military and highly recommend that you go see them. They're in the shopping center there <laughs> at the corner of Northwest Military in Hebner, kind of on the side that faces Northwest Military always welcome there they always love to see you you're always going to find something fun and if you have questions they welcome your call 210-479-BIRD that's Wild Birds Unlimited
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071
1: all right back to gardening and uh, back to the phone lines Joe and Gary are my next two callers Joe's first good morning Joe
7: Good morning. Uh, I planted some palmetto, Saint Augustine in uh, finished in mid July. Okay. When should I when should I fertilize and should I compost in October? And is there anything else I should be doing?
1: <laughs> well, fertilizing should be done and using organic fertilizers. You can do it the day you plant uh, grass. In fact, you could put the fertilizer down before you plant. So. Uh, If you haven't fertilized, I would do it as soon as possible. And for the first year, maybe two years, I'd do it every 90 days. I'd do it, uh, we're just about to the first day of fall uh, coming up in September. So you can remember I'm going to fertilize first day of fall, first day of winter, first day of spring, first day of summer. So um, uh, that I uh, I would very definitely suggest. Compost is one of the best possible things you can do. It, you need to wait till it cools off a little bit. I'd like to hope that's going to be in September. It almost certainly will be by November, but I've seen years that I wasn't real comfortable putting compost out until November. So uh, just as soon as we, these daytime temperatures are dependably down in the 80s, uh, especially if we get down to the mid to low 80s, boy, get that compost and put it on. If you're buying bulk compost, which is certainly the cheapest way to buy it, Do water it after you put it down, not because it's going to cause any problem, but there are things in the compost that will volatilize. They will, you know, turn to a gas and be lost rather than benefiting uh, the the grass. So do water bulk compost down. Now, if you're buying it in a bag, that compost is traditionally more of a finished compost, and uh, you can put that out today, and it certainly does not have to be watered in. But if you have any... I'm sorry, I'm sorry
7: it, will be, it will be bulk. And should yeah. I put a half inch or a quarter inch?
1: Uh, I would not worry about measuring it. <laughs> I would I would put approximately, let's say approximately three-eighths of an inch, and then some of it will be a little thicker, some of it will be a little thinner, and it will all be good.
7: Okay, my last question is, um, do you think that the compost at Burning Bush is good?
1: Uh, my experience with it has been good. It, uh, okay. They, um, uh, once again, so far as I know, they do not do any biosolids. I don't like no. biosolids compost, not because it's human waste. That doesn't bother me. But uh, today's waste stream is so full of pesticides and hormones and all sorts of nasty stuff. I don't want to put in my yard. But tell them as long as it's biosolid-free, uh, it should be all good right. stuff for you.
7: They have molasses, natural green, and manure. They have three Mm -hmm. different
1: types. (laughs) Tell them to blend them all together, because all three of those things sound good.
7: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your program.
1: Joe, I appreciate your call this morning. Uh, You get out and enjoy, and call me whenever I can help. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're you're welcome. Uh, Gary's next. Good morning, Gary.
8: Good morning, sir. How are you?
1: I'm off to a good start. I got about 10 inches of lightning last night, and... Eight inches of thunder and not a drop of rain, so I'm feeling a little cheated today, but uh, happy for everybody else that got a good rain out of it, and hopefully my turn's coming.
8: I know the feeling. We, I live in New Braunfels, and we had the same thing.
1: You well, know, I'm and it's funny,
8: and, yeah,
1: and my engineer uh, lives down toward Shirts, which is not that far away, and said they got a good soaking rain, so... Uh, uh, it's just all in being under the right cloud, but uh, I'm just glad to, you know, to see that high pressure gets bumped out of the way, and hopefully we'll get back into a little bit more regular rain to go along with uh, at least somewhat cooler temperatures. But hey, it's a good start.
8: I have two quick questions for you. Number yes, sir. one, is it too late to solarize? I have some some grass areas that I want to convert into landscape islands. Am I okay. too late to solarize those areas? It's it's Bermuda grass, and I know it's tough to try and get rid of.
1: Well, look into your crystal ball and tells me what the weather's going to be. If it stays in the 90s for three or four weeks, you're okay. In this case, if you can, I would loosen the soil a bit and, of course, moisten it before you put the plastic over it because steam heat kills much better than dry heat, and if the if the Bermuda is just a little bit green, if it's in a little bit of active growth, it's going to die more quickly. And that, that goes for whether you're spraying with vinegar and orange oil or whether you're solarizing. But uh, I, I think you're probably good to solarize. But like I say, if, if there's any way you can loosen the soil so that the heat and steam can penetrate better, it will give you a more complete kill since uh, obviously you can't leave it on for 8 or 10 weeks and expect stay hot for that long but i suspect we're going to have adequately hot weather for the next four to six weeks it should do a pretty good job for you
8: okay and have you had any luck i know the dirt doctors talked about buffalo grass Mm -hmm. and i've got a pretty decent sized patch it's just natural bermuda and i want to make a better lawn out of it and have you done any thinking or looking into that i know you were talking to him about it a couple of weeks ago
9: Well, there
1: are two different types of buffalo grass. There is a clumping type of buffalo grass that uh, uh, makes a great pasture grass, makes a great grass where you're just looking for green and you don't tend tend to mow it and treat it like a manicured yard. Uh, Then there are your turf type buffalo grasses. The turf type buffalo grasses have the advantage of being perhaps our most drought tolerant grass out there, but unfortunately they don't compete well with uh, Bermuda and certainly not with St. Augustine. So uh, if you take really good care of your yard, if you fertilize in water regularly, your Bermuda is going to dominate the buffalo grass. Uh, if you're looking for something that you can pretty much ignore and have it look pretty good for you and you have a good sunny area, then it's certainly worth considering. But it, it's one of those weird things where uh, the better care you take of it, uh, the more likely you are to have a problem with Bermuda out-competing it. So if you're starting with a pretty much a clean pallet, uh, if you're going two or three or four weeks between waterings instead of watering every week, probably a good choice.
10: Okay. Thank you, sir.
1: You are certainly welcome. Good questions. I appreciate the call. And uh, it looks like it's time for me to take another break here. I do have a couple of open lines, so grab one of them if you've been getting a busy signal. You know the number, 210-599-5555. I get to talk to you about Wild uh, Wild Birds Unlimited. Just talked about those guys. I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And did I worry about the storm last night? No. I lay there and watched the lightning flash, heard the thunder rolling around out there. And even if it decided to hail, thank goodness it didn't for the benefit of my plants, I just don't worry about storms and weather with the Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on my home. Uh, My home even survived, a, uh, as George Carlin would say, a near hit, not a near miss, but had a tornado go through a field not very far from my home. Lots of wind, no problem whatsoever. Our roof here at the nursery, Southwest Metal Roofing System, put on, what, 12, 15 years ago. It is set up to baseball-sized hail without damage. I just love the quality of the metal they use because it is truly lifetime quality. And the workmanship, which is truly the best in the industry, they build these roofs to hurricane standards. And you have lots of choices too. Choices of colors, choices of styles, you can have a roof that looks like ceramic tile for instance without all the weight and without all the expense. Let me tell you, Southwest Metal Sistings roofs are very reasonably priced and they are truly the last roof you will ever put on your home. I remember asking uh Tommy the uh you know after we had that tornado here in San Antonio if any of their roofs were hurt and he said only the ones the tree fell on. It's uh it just is the I think the best looking roof and the most durable roof. They're energy efficient, they're gonna save you money on your utility bills. Most insurance companies give a discount because they know that the roofs are not gonna have, suffer storm damage. And even if you're in new construction, they do new construction as well as roof replacements. If you want to learn more, just give them a call, 210-822-6868, 210-822-6868. Just tell them you want a roof like they put on Shades of Green, the roof they put on my home, the roof they put on my partner's home, and so many of our customers and our friends that we've referred to them, and they all come away just absolutely loving their roofs from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Music
0: south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071
1: all right back to gardening my next two callers are lynn and joey lynn is first in line good morning lynn
11: good morning bob how are you doing
1: off to a good start how about yourself
11: pretty good although just like you we didn't get we got a lot of thunder and lightning but no rain
1: well it's coming, I just don't know when, but uh it will get here. Just gotta hang on till then.
11: Oh, all right. So this is my dilemmas. I try to uh transplant um plumbago and I have no luck with it. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but my, my my mode of operation is that I I dig it dig up what I can and I put it in a bucket full of uh water and um have to grow or Medina-grown green, and maybe some liquid molasses, liquid seaweed. And I'll let that sit in there until I dig my hole, and then Mm -hmm. I transplant it. And then I tend to water it every day or every other day. And it just dies on me. So what am am I doing?
1: You're probably doing it at the wrong time of year. Uh, It is tough to move anything, especially a relatively tender plant like Plumbago, uh, in anything except the real cool months of the year. November would be a good time to do it, just mulch it heavily in case we get early cold. Um, February would be a good month to do it, but boy, once it really warms up, Plumbego's tough to move. So I think you're probably, sounds like you're, you've got a real good game plan, but uh, um, you just need to wait for a little bit more moderate weather to put it into effect.
11: I I did it in the spring, and it didn't survive, so I need to do it more winterish, you know, maybe more like February, maybe.
1: Maybe so, and be sure, uh, like we talk about this with trees and big shrubs all the time, but as far as the watering goes, uh, be careful you're not keeping the ground too wet. Uh, You can spray over the foliage regularly, but always feel the soil before you water because if you water too often, you get so much water, it displaces the oxygen in the soil. Roots have to have right. oxygen. If they don't get it, the roots right. die, and then the plants die. So um, I, uh, that, the, that's the only thing that I can think of that would keep that from being successful. Uh, your other option, if for whatever reason it just doesn't move to the ground well, would be uh, put it in a pot. Keep it in a pot for a month where you can really baby it along and let it get some new roots started, and then take it out and replant it. And that way you're virtually 100% uh, sure to be able to get it. Because Plumbago likes a good deal of sun, but uh, it would be nice to put it in a pot, be able to keep it in a little bit more bright shade area while it gets some roots regrown before you put it back out in that stressful area. So if you're not successful directly transplanting, uh, just put it in a gallon bucket, a two-gallon bucket, whatever, uh, for 6 weeks uh by that time you should start seeing some new white roots coming out the holes in the bottom of the pot and i think you'll be 100% successful transplanting it that way
11: Okay i have done that in the past with no luck but maybe i'm just maybe i'm just not good at this i <laughs> have to
1: get Well to the no there's got to be a reason i i suspect you're killing things with kindness i suspect you're probably yeah. overdoing the watering which is a kiss of death for lots of plants lot of and uh, yeah and and i know it's easier just to grab the hose and water but you really got to take the time to stick your finger down in and be sure that soil's dry an inch deep before you water again and don't rely on those stupid little things they call moisture meters they don't work
11: yeah no i didn't think they would okay well thank you now what about transplanting uh butterfly weed is is winter the best time for that as well
1: Winter, well, cool weather is a, probably a good time to transplant. Quite frankly, butterfly weed is usually propagated from cuttings or from seed. Mature plants can be, because they've got uh, you know, pretty thick roots, they just don't transplant real easily. I would tell you okay. that transplanting butterfly weed, April, is probably going to be the best month of the year to do it.
11: Okay, and what about cutting back... Um uh lantana i bought these land all my lantana died um i thought i i think you know i lost more plants with the one night of freeze we had last winter that caught me you know oh yeah, yeah. Than, many, pe- than I many did people with, did uh, with nomageddon i only lost my beloved lemon tree in that but yeah. um but uh but i lost a bunch of lantana last year and some of it I I was going to replace and as it turns out it started some of it started coming up <laughs> Tell you until what. July. Listen,
1: I'm going to get uh put you back on hold to we'll talk more in a second here on KTSC Radio.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
1: All right, let's get back to gardening. Uh we're going to talk a little more with Lynn and then uh we'll move on to Joey. Um, Lynn, you're asking about lantanas, and a lot of people had your same experience. It was due in part to the fact that the cold, even though this you know, past fall wasn't as bad as it was in 21, it was a lot drier. Uh, 2021, we had snow on the ground, we had fairly moist soil, and that makes a big difference to a lot of perennials. When we have dry cold, uh, things that are usually hardy, like the lantanas, get hurt a whole lot worse, so... Uh, It just is really important that especially if we've had uh, warm, dry weather and then it suddenly gets cold, especially important that you be sure that they get a good soaking. And with Lantana in particular, I like to just mound two or three inches of compost over the base of the plants. I just literally take a bag or a bucket and just pour a big glob of it right down in the middle of the plant and that way, when the plants freeze back, and the the trailing lantana, some years it freezes back, some years it stays evergreen, the mounding-type lantanas almost always freeze back. And having that three inches or so of compost over them, they just always seem to come back. So um, it's everybody had more problems, at least I know we certainly did, uh, this year than we did in 21, even though 21 was, uh, the temperature got colder and lower. So... Uh, keep that in mind. Hopefully going forward, we'll move into having a wetter fall since the Pacific is in what they call the El Nino state, and it won't be as much of an issue. Hopefully we won't get that cold. The Farmer's Almanac says we will, but a lot of meteorologists I know are very much on the fence. So just, just be prepared. But I think what really hurt this year was the fact that we had a lot of warm and a lot of dry right up until it suddenly got cold.
11: Right, and I keep a lot of mulch on my plants, but I, I went and replaced a couple of them, and uh-huh. I let them get, they were really leggy. And I kept uh-huh. them leggy because I thought it, they needed to keep their foliage, as much of their foliage, but they're just goofy looking. So if I was to cut them back now, is that too late to do it? But they're they're really leggy. <laughs> and if, it's,
1: if it's combined with a good feeding, you can do it almost any time. I, you know, I would say that in a typical year, yes, you have time to get some more flowering out of them. Uh, I wish we were having this conversation on, you know, the 1st of September or even the 15th of August uh, when we know there would be more time. But the way the weather's looking right now, uh, cut them back, not as far back as you would in the winter months, but give them a good haircut, but be sure you followed up with some, Fast-acting liquid fertilizer, like Medina's Has to Grow plant or their liquid fish blend, uh, the dry fertilizer simply take a little bit longer for the microbes to process the nutrients to where the plants okay. can make use of them. The liquid products, it's almost instantly available to them. Okay, so,
11: well, uh, Sam is showing up on this week, Monday or Tuesday, So, um, but he only uses the dry. So right. that, that's not enough then. I need to use the wet.
1: Yeah, the and it's not that much okay. trouble.
11: Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, now, um, okay, and then mondo grass. Two summers ago, I had I had dug up a uh, I had gardeners dig up a an old um, walkway and put in grass. A lot of it died, um, and um, I thought I may not go back to it. It's Under did a, a huge deodar cedar and a huge oak. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I've seen this really dwarf mondo grass. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really short. Is it being cut, or does it only grow two inches no
1: that that is the dwarf form that stays down about two inches tall it's wonderful it's slow to get established, but uh it is a it is tough right now it's a little hard to find um but yeah I'm sure as we move into fall, the supply will increase but uh, uh aside from the fact you know you have to plant it a little closer together, which makes it more expensive to establish and something like Asian jasmine. But if it's not too big an area, it is absolutely one of my favorite ground covers because it is tough and hardy. Now, never mulch it. You don't ever want to be piling anything that's going to keep it too wet above ground level. But uh, it's cold hardy. It's drought tolerant. It's uh, insect and disease resistant. Uh, dwarf mondo, dwarf opiopogon, dwarf monkey grass, whatever you want to call it, uh, is an outstanding plant.
11: Now, that, it, could that have been the case? I lost a lot of blue shade this past winter, which mm-hmm. normally I had enough to supply a city, but um, but I have lost a tremendous amount of it. Would that have been from watering too much, or would that have been from too dry and
7: hot?
1: Probably, um, probably too dry and hot. Uh, it's it, you know, you get root damage if you water too much. You get root damage if it stays too dry. In most cases. Uh, with with a plant like blue shade, which is a little bit of a tender, tender fleshy plant, it's going to be more a problem of too little water than too much.
11: Okay, all right. Because in the grass, it's still growing great, but in my mulch beds, it died back. And <laughs> in that case,
1: kind of... <laughs> yeah, it 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 could have been you know it could have been too wet if it was heavily mulched, but um. Again, just don't trust the moisture meter. Don't trust the weather. Just go stick your finger down in. If it feels dry below the mulch, then it probably needs water. Still feels moist. Wait another day or two or three.
11: Oh, okay. Thank you so much. And and thanks for holding me over on the break. But, oh, um,
1: well, always my pleasure. <laughs> we want to do our best to get all your questions in. So you have okay. a wonderful weekend. And call me again and tell well, Sam I said hello.
12: All
11: right. Take care. Thank, Bye-bye.
1: Uh, goodbye. All right, uh, next in line is going to be Joey, then it's going to be Matt and Hank. Good morning, Joey. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? Off to a good start. Still sorry we some of us missed the rain, but happy for all the people that got it last night. And hopefully our turn will come later this week.
10: Yes, sir. Say, I called last week about the bur oak that the leaves turned brown. Right. Um, uh, so I came home that day, and I was spraying the trunk up and down, and all the... Uh-huh. Brown leaves fell off, but I still that's a have good some sign. green ones on there. So, yeah, yeah, that's a good sign.
13: Very
1: good I sign.
10: Say, I thought I'd heard you say that in the past.
1: <laughs> yes, sir. And keep spraying the trunk. That's the best thing you can do. We have to be careful keeping the soil too wet. But uh, my old friend and mentor, Alton Grimm, he would have me, especially when we got bare-root stuff in, he'd have me out there with a hose six or eight times a day spraying things down because it just absorbs directly through that soft bark. Now, When you get to the point that you've got that thick, gnarly, rough bark that that burrow will ultimately grow, then uh, you just have to keep the water up on the branches where it's still that thin, smooth bark. But uh, um, I'm pleased to hear that because I don't think your tree's in serious trouble.
10: All right, awesome. I just wanted to double-check. I thought I'd heard you say that in the past, that if the tree keeps all its leaves and turns brown, it's probably
13: a goner. But if it sheds its leaves, there's still a chance it could survive.
1: You're a, you're a good listener. <laughs> it's just the plant, the thing to remember, and I always like to talk about why, not just what, but the plant's losing moisture constantly through a green leaf. The process is called transpiration, and, uh, you know, it, it. it's just it's shedding a lot of water faster than it can take it up through its roots, and so the natural thing for the tree to do is get rid of some of those leaves. It's like you... Got a bucket of water in there, you want it to drain out slowly, but it's got ten holes in it. You go plug up nine of the holes so it grows out a little more slowly, and that's what your tree's doing It's just getting it's just reducing its losses, so to speak it's it's going down to fewer leaves so it doesn't carry on as much transpiration, which is sort of water conservative for it and that's what you're doing awesome
10: well, I got a pretty good rain last night over good here i still should I still spray the the trunk today, you think?
1: I would if you can it's going to be hot and dry this afternoon, so uh uh as you do it two or three times if you have the time to do it, you'll never overdo it. You can certainly keep the ground too wet, but uh I use the example of uh propagation tables that a commercial grower would have uh, our growers uh they're they're in a real loose open medium and they're just basically wetting the cuttings, and their misters come on twelve fifteen times an afternoon. So uh, you're not really going to hurt anything. Uh, just like I say, don't keep soil too wet. Top of the tree, you'd love it if you'd uh, give it a spray as often as you can get around to it.
13: Got gotcha. you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time.
1: Uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to Matt. Good morning, Matt.
13: Good morning, Bob. Happy Sunday.
1: And to you as well, sir. What's going on today?
13: A couple of quick questions for you. Uh, how much effect or influence does the size and texture of a pot have in an outdoor plant?
1: That's a good question. Um, It depends on the type of pot. Now, if you've got an unglazed pot, if you've got a terracotta pot, water moves through the pot, evaporates off the surface, which actually keeps the uh, soil a little bit cooler. A glazed pot, okay. you know, you're not having any water moving, so uh, it's it, that's not going to happen. Uh, the darker the color of a pot, the more heat it will absorb and transmit. A thick-walled pot out of Asia, uh, that doesn't make any difference. A blue pot or dark blue pot is not going to be much different from a white pot. But if you're using a real thin-walled pot, uh, a dark-colored pot, the soil is going to be 15, 20 degrees warmer which on an afternoon can, you know, mean that the roots are not as happy. So uh, those things can, you know, come into play. Size of the pot is really critically important for most things. The bigger the pot, the more unevenly it dries out. And that's why we try not ever to put a small plant in a great big pot. It's always much better to move the size up gradually. Or if you have a really big pot, plant several plants together in there, if we're doing a combination pot for instance, because through that process we were just talking about transpiration, it releases the moisture, the soil doesn't stay constantly wet, you don't have the oxygen deprivation. So uh, bigger pots with one plant in them until they are fully rooted out, they're going to hold water longer and that's not usually a good thing, especially in the winter months. the more root-bound a plant becomes, the faster it uses the water. And it doesn't hurt a plant to be root-bound. Plants, the happiest plants I ever see, are pretty well root-bound. Problem is, ultimately, it gets to the point that you're having to water them two or three times a day. When that happens, it's certainly time to get them into a bigger pot. But uh generally speaking, where possible, it's better to move the plant up gradually It's better to have a bigger plant to plant into a bigger pot or putting multiple plants in there will accomplish the same thing. Um, Beyond that, uh, I would stay away from metal pots unless they're really old. Uh, The zinc that they use to galvanize pots can be damaging to plant roots. Um, I tell people, you know, if, if you are planting into a new zinc pot, and you want the very best results. Smear the inside of that pot with something like Vaseline. Take a cleaner's bag, press up against it, and trim around the top. Just you really don't want roots coming into contact with fresh galvanizing. That can be a little hard on them. That's not an issue with uh, you know with clay pots uh, glazed or unglazed. So God, it's sort of pot 101. What what am I failing to tell you that you need to know?
13: Well, the uh, issue is we got. Two elephant ear plants. Uh huh. One is in a bigger pot and is kind of spindly. The other one is in about a half size pot of the big pot and is doing terrific.
1: Yep. And that that tells me exactly what we were talking about. The smaller pot is drying out more evenly. Uh, the bigger pot, it's probably staying too wet. And that drives the oxygen out of the soil, and the plants, you know, just not, it's going to languish until the roots really get that pot filled out. Um, the if, if you ever put in a small plant like that, a small elephant ear in a big pot, put three of them in the pot because that kind of balances out where you've got more transpiration going on uh, to help the soil dry more quickly. Either that or keep the elephant ear in a smaller pot until it's much more root-bound or move it up to a little bit bigger size, let it fill that out before you put it in. But uh, uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. I would expect that uh, the smaller pot uh, is going to do a lot better.
13: Okay, because the, the bigger pot is a older plastic pot. Mm-hmm.
1: That should make no difference whatsoever. Now, uh, I guess the one thing I would say about that, is terracotta unglazed tends to dry out faster because moisture can move through and evaporate off the surface of the pot. A plastic pot is non-porous. So a plastic pot is always going to hold water longer. So that that doesn't really surprise me at all. Age has something to do with the fact that it's plastic and doesn't breathe, so to speak. That has a lot to do with it.
13: Okay. Uh, Second question, quick one. What would be a good, effective way to help re- eliminate or reduce the spread of a good old purple wandering Jew plant?
1: <laughs> Keep it in a pot. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I, and I say that half-jokingly, but uh, it won't be 100%, but you can actually dig a hole Stick that pot and all down in the ground, and until the wandering juice spreads out and starts taking root elsewhere, it will slow it down. And um, there's some plants that that bloom best if they're root-bound, like bougainvilleas, and I frequently tell people, plant the bougainvillea pot and all, because having that root system compacted is going to give you a lot more flowers, Now, in the case of uh, your wandering Jew, eventually it's going to crawl over the sides of the pot, start rooting into the soil around it. But uh, it's uh, it's just, especially the old-fashioned purple one, uh, which people generally just call purple heart. It's uh, a sick botanically, but it's one of the toughest, hardiest plants out there. It's one of those plants that I tell people, if you can't grow this stuff, you're going to have to switch to plastic because it's one of the easiest things going. But because of that, it can become invasive.
13: Oh yes it does. <laughs> okay. All right, sir. That was it for me today.
1: We appreciate the call, Matt. You have a great uh Sunday and uh Hank, hang on a second. We need to get one more break in here and uh then you will be next. Couple of open lines. Grab line if you like, you know the number. Two ten
0: five nine nine fifty five fifty five. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071.
1: All right. It's going to be Hank and Pat and Jim. Hank is up first. Good morning, Hank.
9: Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hey, I got a question. Is there any danger in using galvanized nails to nail decorations and different things to oak, oak trees?
1: You know, the uh, the danger is not from the galvanizing. It's from the, you know, the wound to the tree. And it's thought that that's the original oak wilt uh, infestation or infection, whatever you want to call it, uh, was found in Illinois where people had nailed a basketball goal to a side of an oak tree. So I'm not big on nailing directly into a tree if you can avoid it. If you need to nail into a tree... Take a little bit of uh, any kind of paint or anything like that. After you put the nail in, just spray on the uh, on the bark around it. So uh, I wouldn't be that concerned about whether it's a galvanized nail or a bright nail. But uh, where possible, try try not to nail into a tree if you can avoid it.
9: Okay, I was just want to add some decorations and bird feeders and stuff like that using small nails. I was just
1: wondering. Yeah, you can do that. the and especially on bird feeders, I like uh oh, I'm trying to remember what they call them um they make a hook that is very broad on the top so it will loop over a fairly big branch and then goes down to a smaller hook on the bottom uh that's great for hanging bird feeders or you know hanging bird baths or wind chimes or things like that decorations where you can. Uh, still best, I, I like using something like monofilament fishing line that doesn't show. And uh, if you can't wrap the the uh, lights and things like that around the trunk, um, you can, you know, in effect, loop something around the branch. As long as you don't leave it there and ultimately girdle, uh, there are things you can use that don't show that, once again, where you can, I would, I would rather see you do that. Now, if you just need to put a hook into the tree, uh just do it one time, spray it, and it didn't have to be pruning paint, just anything that seals it for about a week uh will protect the tree. But uh uh <laughs> woe be to the person who someday decides to cut that limb with a chainsaw and finds a nice chunk of metal embedded inside of it. But uh uh it's it just you, you want to wound a tree as little as possible, I guess is what it comes down to.
3: Okay.
9: I got one more question. I okay. got Maple tree and some red buds that are completely browned out. The leaves are browned out. Do you think they're gone or do You think they'll come back next year, or is it just out stressed? Did the did the leaves
1: uh, are the leaves still attached to the tree, or did they brown off and then fall off?
9: Uh, the maple, they're still attached to the tree. The red buds are are shed leaves
1: probably both of them are going to be okay the maple is basically sunburned but it can put out on a whole new set of leaves uh in the spring the red buds really unless they're brand new freshly planted plants they would rather be dry than moist and there are a lot of people have killed a lot of red buds this summer watering them too often so where the leaves brown out and then drop off there's pretty good chance that tree's going to come back out next spring so I'm not really worried about either one of these, uh, and there's not a lot you can do about it. Just when you do water, feel the soil at the base of the tree, especially that redbud, and uh, be sure that you're not watering until it's dry a good couple of inches deep because redbuds would rather be on the brown side. Uh, With the maple, I'm pretty sure it's just sunburn and not a water issue.
9: Okay. Well, thanks.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the call this uh, morning. Get out and have a good Sunday, Hank. Thank you, sir. Uh, next in line is Pat. Uh, good morning, Pat.
14: Good morning. How are good you? Good morning.
1: I'm off to a good start. It's a beautiful day out there. I just know it's going to be hot when I go outside, but not as hot as it was yesterday. So every little bit helps, And uh, but it is a beautiful Sunday out there.
14: Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, I got four, hopefully, quick questions. Okay. One of them is about mulch. Uh-huh. I read, I bought uh, some uh, pine bark mulch. It's organic, uh-huh. uh, state pride. And then I went to Dirt Doctor and saw that he says that pine bark is almost worse than any kind of mulch because of its <laughs> off <off-death>. gas. <laughs> so I just went it because I love the way it looks, and it said organic, and I thought it was okay. So what do you think? I think
1: it's okay. I think it's not the best you could do. Uh, number one, pine bark is very, <laughs> floats away very, very easily. And it's because it, it came from a different soil type and everything else, it's not going to break down into the nutritious material that a local product would, uh, so to speak. But uh, if we if we look at the reasons that we mulch, we mulch to suppress weeds, we mulch to cool the soil, we mulch to maintain moisture in the soil, and we mulch because the mulch breaks down and provides nutrients to the tree uh, or to the area that you have put it. Uh, the only place that pine barks fails is on that last one. It's not going to break down and really benefit your soil that much. But it is going to suppress weeds. It is going to keep the soil cooler. It is going to help retain moisture. So uh, it's definitely not the perfect mulch unless you live in Tyler, but uh, it's not a bad mulch by any means. Now... I am not a fan of dyed mulches because they can have very toxic things in them. Uh, This mulch that they make out of cocoa is deadly to dogs if they eat it, so I would never use that mulch anywhere. Well, I just would never use that mulch anywhere. But pine bark's cheap, and um, like I say, it it has its its good qualities and its negative qualities, so I'm certainly not going to condemn it. But uh I, you know, the stuff that you would get from the brush dump is actually probably better than that stuff is. And if you know a friend that's a tree trimmer or something like that, they actually have to pay to dump all those chippings after they chip up trees where they've been working. And uh if you know anybody in that business, they'd probably happily dump a load of it for you <laughs> because that way they don't have to pay to dispose of it and uh mix a little compost with it, and that would be a really good mulch. So, uh long answer to a short question there's nothing wrong with pine bark but uh it's kind of like eating sawdust as opposed to eating steak it's not that good for you but it does fill you up <laughs>
14: okay all right <laughs> okay moving along uh uh sun uh eggplant this was from from in the summer but it, i see i planted a sun gold and the same things happening to my sun gold uh on the leaves it um it has the leaves kind of start turning yellow and they have like really really small pinholes in them almost like like a perforation and i can't tell if it's an insect or if it's a disease or or no, it's, what it's it's
1: it's a little beetle i don't think it's sungold. Sungold is a tomato but what you're describing is much more common on eggplant than on tomatoes but um uh i it's it's a little tiny black beetle called a flea beetle Uh, The damage is cosmetic. If you want to eliminate it, spray with a little bit of spinosad on a cloudy day. But uh, it's not damaging the plant that much, and it doesn't seem to hurt the fruit at all.
14: Okay, great, great. Yeah, no, I had it on the eggplant, and I just planted a sun gold tomato, and I went out there, and it seemed to have the same thing. So, uh, yeah, that's
1: okay. Well, on on the sun gold, it could be spider mites or it could be a beetle. But on eggplant, whether it's hitchibon or black Beauty or whichever one of the eggplants uh that that particular insect damage is much more common than it is on tomatoes and it's uh it's one of the few things that we'll get after the foliage on eggplant, so I'm sure that's what it is on the eggplant tomato, maybe maybe not
14: okay uh can I spray the the uh, tomato with the spinosad?
1: absolutely absolutely uh, wash it uh you know, I love sun gold. When I walk out in the garden in the afternoon, first thing I do is pick and eat about 10 sun gold tomatoes, and I don't bother to wash them or anything. If I've had to spray with spinosad, then the only difference is I'll wash them before I start popping them.
14: Okay, great. Okay, and then one other question about shishito. I love shishito peppers. I planted uh, three or four plants with wonderful hopes, <laughs> and they they got a lot of fruit on them, but they never got... Big. I mean, they would get about one inch, and then they would actually turn red before they Mm -hmm. would even get longer.
1: That's like Uh, maturing prematurely due to the heat. Um, I hope you still have the plants. I think they're going to do much better for you this fall.
14: Oh, good. I do. I do. Okay.
1: And even, you know, even small, I mean, it's harder to blister them, uh, you know, in that iron skillet like we love to do. But once they turn red, they lose their texture. They still have flavor, uh, but they're not nearly as uh, pleasing to the tongue, so to speak. So uh, if when it's hot like this, you just have to pick them while they're tiny. They're still going to be delicious and wonderful, uh, but you they will go back to being much larger peppers when the weather gets a little cooler.
14: Oh, that makes me happy. Okay. And then uh, one last question. Can we grow St. John's? Wart here as a ground cover
1: we can though it's properly called hypericum there are many different forms of it and some of them do better than others it's strictly for shade or morning sun it will not tolerate the hot afternoon sun uh but it's it's a nice little plant beautiful yellow flowers it does like a pretty rich soil maybe work some compost in when you plant but uh um as a, as a perennial in the shade, uh, nothing at all wrong with uh, St. John's Word. It, it's a pretty plant.
14: Okay, very good. Well, I thank you so much, and you have a good day, and I yeah. hope you get some rain.
1: <laughs> thank you, Pat. I appreciate it. Uh, Jim, hang on just a second. We need to get a break in here. I get to talk about Rhonda's Nature's Way. That's always a fun thing to do because I just love – I love Rhonda's store. I love going out there visiting. I love talking to uh, – All the folks out there, including Rhonda, it's just always a learning experience to go in. And uh, the more you can learn about staying healthy, keeping your immune system strong, avoiding uh, all those pitfalls of the the junk you see on the store shelves of the grocery stores and chain pharmacies, it's just fun to go to a professionally operated store where the folks are truly interested in helping you maintain your good health. And they have absolutely top quality products to help you do that. Uh, And they can help in so many different ways. If you're fighting issues like digestion or sleep, if you're trying to lose weight but still have a little bit of that sweet tooth, oh, man, you need to taste some of those monk fruit sweetened things that they have at Rondas. And if you're like me, you spend a lot of time out in the sun, you sweat a lot, let me tell you what, you really need to be consuming electrolytes, and I'm not talking about those sugar-filled sports drinks, I like the one called Ultima and Rhonda has several different flavors, You simply put that little straw of it into uh, 8 ounces or so of water, you find it much easier to drink that water and uh, tastes wonderful and really, really helps keep you hydrated when we're having the kind of summer we've been having. I can go on and on, I can tell you about reflexology, I can tell you about the red light therapies but you really just need to go by Rhonda sometime and see what all she offers. Located over in the shopping center at the corner of I-10 and Callahan. They're closed today like they are every Sunday. But other than the major holidays, they're there Monday through Saturday every week. And they would love to see you at Ronda's Nature's Way.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071
1: all right well we started the show off with a bunch of people's names started with c this is the j session this is going to be jim and john and james and jim is first in line good morning jim
10: hey happy sunday you.
1: and to you as well sir what's going on today
10: well uh i've got a couple of questions for you i'll try to get get through this as quick as i can uh i i uh I get to spend a lot of time out in the hill country. Uh, I've got a close friend who's got several thousand acres out there, and I help him out a lot. Good his land is it's it's uh, typical uh, overgrown junipers, wheat satch, uh about every acacia that's known, and and uh, all, you know all this stuff. <laughs> but but uh, there's there's one spot that's about it's about four and a half acres or so, and it's just a forest of huge old elm trees. Hmm. and uh it, bo- both of us my friend and myself were very very concerned about everything to do with the environment and one of this area has been designated by by himself as very environmentally sensitive because of karst features uh-huh. and in in my in my mind i have a kind of a description of a karst feature as like a natural express lane for storm water to get to the aquifer and I, is that is that sound somewhat correct
1: well yes and no karst refers to basically a type of limestone and it has to do with the way that the limestone was laid down now karst features are a major part of our aquifers and they are a major part of how the water gets into the aquifer but um the the actual conduit, and I hope this makes sense the conduit from the surface to the aquifer is usually what we would more properly call a sinkhole, but a sinkhole is simply an opening through karst limestone that goes down into uh, basically underground cavities and chambers and things like that uh so yes and no uh the karst features are uh related to the type of rock and that rock free feature- Frequently forms sinkholes and underground caverns, but uh, the word karst itself simply refers to the type of rock, at least as I understand it. Does that make sense?
10: Yeah, well, very. Yeah, very. A lot of sense. It's just more information. It's great to know. Are, do our uh, are, our are elm trees in general kind of a. a do, do they grow well in those environments, or is that just a coincidence that there's a lot of elm trees in that area where those karst features are?
1: Well, that's uh, excuse me. It's a good question. Uh, elm trees grow well where they have good drainage, and um, the karst air, you know, type of rock tends to generally provide good drainage, and in relatively level, undisturbed land. You have gotten lots of good soil deposited or formed on top of good well-draining rocks, so it's an ideal place for it to ideal place for the elms to grow uh the ash juniper that we call cedars it can sit on a shelf of rock because it just sends its roots out in all directions if you've and I'm sure you have knocked over a cedar stump or two in uh, in the many things we tend to do on our properties. And it's a very flat root system and very widespread. If you were to excavate the roots on those cedar elms, you would find that they are very fibrous and they grow down, you know, at least in a one to two ratio uh, as, as to how far they spread out. So uh, this particular area is just, you know, very, very good. It would also be very good for um, various types of oak, be it the little bitty shin oaks. Uh, where I have real deep soil, I have a lot of Lacey's Oak on my property, but uh, it, it just tells you what you already know, that you have a soil and rock combination there that is uh, very agreeable to the way that cedar elms grow, and that maybe that's a little bit more of an explanation of uh, why you tend to see them in that area. Uh, I'm surprised that you don't see an increased number of live oaks and, uh, you know, perhaps escarpment cherries and some of our other good native trees, uh, you know, around that area, because it, it's just obviously a, a place that's very conducive to root growth.
10: Yeah, it seems like the elms kind of outgrow the oaks, and so the, the, there's a few of them in there, but it just seems like the, the elms take over. Um, do you think that the the elms that are just turning brown right now that's a survival mechanism for them or or we're gonna lose some
1: uh depends on whether it rains or not it's very definitely survival mechanism for them uh the elms that i see close up they're dropping leaves like mad which is very definitely just survival mode and uh but if they're big trees they've been through this before they've been through the drought of the 50s if they're really big trees uh there have been over the past 200 years there have been worse drought than we are experiencing right now that those trees probably live through so without seeing them i'm going to tell you uh they're not in deep trouble unless this drought goes on for more months and months longer
10: well thank you it's great talking to you again and and uh ha- have a nice rest of the weekend and
1: can I suggest that can I suggest something that that you guys might like to work on if you've got the time and the energy and this is something that I did uh, on a hilltop at my ranch as time permits I'm going to do it on a couple of other hilltops but working uh, at the advice of a friend who was with parks and wildlife for many years uh we were talking about enhancing you know land for wildlife and other things and he encouraged me to do what he called exclosures, uh, which is an area that, you know, you can you you keep the cattle and deer out of by simply cutting the cedar. And uh, I've done this, probably my biggest exclosures, about maybe three acres. And I went in and cut all the cedar out of it, but then I piled and made kind of a, a, a fence, a, a mound of cedar that the deer and cattle couldn't get over uh, simply from the cedar that I cut off of those three or four acres and uh made myself a little gate to get into it. And over two or three years it's absolutely fascinating what happened. Uh got so many native grasses coming out. In fact they even choked out the uh, KR blue stem coming up, uh the shin oak and some of the other things that uh, the evergreen sumac, things that the browsing animals had kept eating down uh it is turned into just a totally different little area uh, that's, in effect, a, a totally different ecosystem. Uh, we we're talking about not the golden-cheek warblers, but uh, one of the—I'm uh, um, trying to remember which one—that was endangered. Now it's just threatened. But uh, loves the shin oak, which—and uh, and I just had, you know, small moths of shin oak that uh, were, were pretty much being dominated by the juniper— now I've got chin oak that's about five feet tall, which is ideal, which is so thick you can't walk through it. So if if you want to do something fun and watch what can happen to the land, um, create some exposures. They can be, my first one was uh, about 30 feet across, and like I said, my latest one's about three to four acres. But uh, just cut the cedar, but pile it and make an area that it'll keep all the browsing animals out of it. Give it a couple of years, and I think you'll be absolutely fascinated what happens there.
10: That is amazing because we, we're do, we're doing that, but we're not closing it off like that. No, and close it, it off. The grass, the grass is amazing, it, but, mm-hmm. but but
3: that's a wow,
10: That's a wonderful idea, and I'm I'm going to. Uh, now, now i I have to call a meeting <laughs>
1: <laughs> well and uh, there are just an awful lot of things you can do uh your friend's very blessed to have that much land uh have uh uh has it been put under conservation easement? Have you thought about doing that
10: um uh, well he there there's he's got some program in there, and I'm not exactly sure what it is, so I hate to say yes or no because I'm not sure.
1: Well, just um, the one the one thing I will tell you, and I certainly don't have time right here to give you a lesson on conservation easements, but um, for people who really love their land, uh, and it's not a government program, it's an agreement between a landowner and a land trust, but basically it prohibits it ever being turned into a golf course or a subdivision. Uh, the the uh, conservancy that I work with, uh, we allow uh, planning for up to one house per 50 acres, but the tax savings on your personal income tax—if your—if uh, your friend that owns the property is a man who has a substantial income—you'll uh, cut your your cut your uh, personal income tax every year in half, uh, and it also greatly reduces inheritance tax things. So talk to him about it sometime. And if you ever want to talk conservation easements, uh, call me or I'll put you in touch with some people because it's. Uh, it's the people that that we work with and i work with the Cibolo conservancy you've got about 50 different land trusts you can choose but i tell them about half the people do it to protect the land for their kids the other half do it to protect the land from their kids but uh if you've been if you've been blessed with some uh you know a big piece of undeveloped land that you would like to see in that form perpetually uh, conservation easements are a way that will save you a bunch of tax money and protect the land forever. So just something I mentioned and uh, something you might want to look into at some point.
10: Well, as usual, after I'm talking to you, I I, I leave with a, a a bunch of knowledge. Uh, thank
1: you, <laughs> Jim, you get out and have a great Sunday, and I know we'll talk again. Uh, let's get our last break of the hour out of the way, Jimmy, and we'll come back and talk with uh, with, uh uh, our other two J's, john and james
0: south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right
1: back to gardening we're going to talk to john and then james good morning john good morning sir good morning
5: hey i live about a couple three miles uh, north of your partner um we have a um Strange thing that I, I've noticed for a long time. I've been wanting to ask, and I finally remembered to ask. We have a a, a small oak mot, about four oaks. Of course, mm-hmm. they're all tied together, almost one big mass. Right. But right in the middle of it, I have a cedar elm. Uh huh. And the cedar elm and the oak are now the the um, the root system that's above ground. You know, like it should be, mm-hmm. is one piece. It's like it's one organism now.
1: <laughs> well <coughs> excuse me the the cedar elm roots typically grow in close contact but they don't fuse with the oak roots the way that oak roots will fuse with each other it's almost like you know you've transplanted things and um uh, without being too technical they are in effect all one root with one you know common surface and uh common vascular system inside that doesn't right. happen with, uh, with the oaks versus the cedar elm. Those roots are going to wrap around each other. Uh, probably the mycorrhizal fungus that is associated with the roots of both trees is all interconnected. But uh, it, it's uh, you're very observant. That's a very good thing. But uh, uh, it's an interesting observation, but it doesn't really reflect anything good or bad.
5: Okay, because what my thing is, the cedar elm, of course, grows faster than the oak. Uh-huh. it's got up in the middle, which is fine, but I'm getting mm-hmm. some chafing where that cedar elm is chafing against the upper limbs of the oak.
1: Uh, it, it would be probably a good idea to do some selective pruning. I would probably prune on the cedar elm rather than the oak because you don't have to worry about sealing the wounds on the cedar elm, whereas with the oak, any live branch you cut needs to be sealed immediately afterwards, but... Um, uh, it's rubbing on each other. Yeah, that's not a good thing. Just trying to occupy the same space. Uh, that's, it's amazing how, how they are able to do that. And it's partly because the cedar elm is deciduous, the live oak is semi evergreen. So even though it seems like the cedar elm is shading the live oak during four or five months of the year when the cedar elm has no leaves, then the uh, live oak gets to store up an extra large amount of energy to carry it through the period of time when it's not getting as much light. So they, it, it's, you know, it's, it's not, they're not really impacting each other as greatly as you might think, even though the cedar elm is probably going to grow faster and ultimately it's going to shade the oak to some extent. It's not going to shade it from, uh, well, what are we going to say? Usually November through about April, uh, when the cedar right. elm is going to be totally bare leaves.
5: Right. Okay. Now, the second part is while I was out there digging up in the ground to to set some things out, my wife wants to put out, because she's from up north, northeast, or mm-hmm. northwest, I'm sorry, she's used to having, like, ferns up underneath the can- uh, canopy. Uh-huh. Is there any type of fern that will grow around here in that type of situation?
1: Um. And is this an area that you can tend to that you can water regularly, or is it going to be something that's pretty much going to have to survive on its own?
5: uh well, I'd like to let it survive on its own, but it's about ten twenty feet from the front door yeah so i, I can get to it <laughs>
1: um there are there are some ferns
3: that
1: you know that do grow they tend to be things that like a little bit more moisture and a little bit less sun, so they tend to grow more in a canyon area or, you know, a deeply shaded area. There's nothing that's going to look like the ferns that you're going to see in Washington State or Oregon or, you know, even if you were up in the northeast Wisconsin and places like that. There, there's no fern that's going to cover the ground the way that, that she's used to seeing. So um, there are things that you could plant if you could water. Uh, there's some uh, what they call terrace, P-T-E-R-I-S, terrace ferns. There are some of the holly fern types. Um, there's some of your common old river fern. If you wanted to create a fern bed in there, there's certainly some things that, that would grow and would do well, but they're going to have to have water. Or they're going to have to have more attention. You can't just plant them and walk away from
5: them. Got it. so but again, since it's got that <laughs> that strange cedar oak uh, thing, I don't want to water my thing is I don't want to deter from the from the native plant. Yeah,
1: well, eat. mix some lava, sand, and things in there. Um, create a raised bed so that, uh, your ferns, your ferns don't have deep root systems the way that perennials and other shrubby things do. So, gonna be very little competition. Uh, but you are just, you know, work some lava, sand, things like that in that are going to naturally hold a little bit more moisture into that area. Uh, we're right at news time. I'll get Jimmy to put you on hold if you want to talk a little more. Otherwise, we will yes, be sir. back. Thank you, sir. This is KTSA Radio.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
1: All right. We are back to gardening. John's got one more question for us, and we're going to talk to James and Cat. Uh, back to the discussion, John. What else can we talk about?
8: Well, the last thing is since
5: uh, we, we we got rid of every dang cedar, which is great, uh, out of our place about fifteen years ago. I have nothing left to make mulch out of, so I'm having to go out and
3: buy it. <laughs> there's a,
5: which is I mean, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the uh, well, there's a place right here on 3351. Been here for a little bit, and I've talked to some of the people working there. They say they don't add anything. I don't like throwing names out there. Uh, mm-hmm. If I think it's called GeoSource.
1: Um, yeah. Do you know yeah.
5: anything uh, about them? Are they worth a darn?
1: Or they're they're a very environmentally sensitive company. They a very interesting piece of property. Um, my only objection is they're expensive. Uh, they they make okay. a good product, but it's a little bit higher than what you're going to pay at site one or some of the other uh, material yards, but. Uh, they they're doing a good thing. They're very uh, environmentally friendly in in what they do, and I have uh, I have no negatives against them. They do a good job. Uh, it's just people that uh, and, and you know we've got our own chipper. We tend to make our own mulch on our own property from our cedars and all. So I don't buy a lot from them, but uh, they have. It's a very uniform. It's a very nice material. Is it better? Then what you get basically for free over at the, uh, brush dump over near Bernie, the Kendall County, uh, recycling material they make is, uh, a lot cheaper, but it's not nearly as, you know, clean and nice as what you're going to get from GeoSource. So don't know if that answers your question. They're good people with good product if you've
0: got deep pockets no no i'm from Kendall county i don't have deep pockets (laughs) (laughs) i don't live in
3: the
5: dominion (laughs) there you go
0: or
3: or in cordillera
5: (laughs) there you go there you go thank you sir you're
1: certainly welcome thank you i appreciate the call all right uh next in line is james good morning james how you doing bob i'm good how about yourself
2: i'm doing all right i'm out here in uh, somerset texas i have a couple of questions Okay. Uh, I like the, the shrimp plants. Uh huh. I got some growing and I got these little black specks on them. What I have been doing is just cutting the flower off. Mm-hmm. And it promotes growth, but is that the right thing to do with those?
1: It doesn't matter. It makes no difference whatsoever. It's just something that shrimp plants do in the heat. They're one of the toughest plants out there. The hummingbirds love them. They are one oh, of the most, yes, de- they do. one of the most dependable perennials that uh, you could manage to name. Um, deadheading them, taking the old flowers off, in my experience, doesn't really seem to increase the number of flowers. They go right on producing flowers whether you deadhead them or not. So uh, it's up to you. I I wouldn't cut them back severely. If you're going to cut them back severely, you need to do it in uh, early spring, say about March or so, Uh, but to go through and do a little cosmetic trimming on them, just like cutting your hair, you make it look any way you want to make it look. Leaving the black on there, is that going to hurt the plant? Is it something that brushes off, or is it something that is actually uh, a part of the leaf?
2: Actually, it's part of the leaf. It's not on the ends.
1: Yeah, it's probably, it's it's a little bit of what we call a circus fungus. It's not going to hurt. It's uh, cosmetically, you know, it keeps them from being a beautiful, perfect plant, but it's not something exactly. that's going to spread or cause any other issue. Uh, if you've got the time and energy to clip it off, uh, if you leave it there, your shrimp plant's going
2: to do fine anyway. Well, I have been fertilizing, you know, every two weeks in the evening yep. time. That's what they say, the best time to fertilize. One one other question about the firecracker plants. Uh huh. Do they? Where I'm at out here in the Somerset, there's a lot of sandy loam. Right. And this firecracker plant is planted just in the ground. It's not in a pot or anything.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I can dig down in that sandy loam, but what, not even a foot, and it's already moist. Right. You know. So anyway, do they need a lot of water, or do they like dry feet? Once they are
1: established, uh, they they don't require much of anything from you. It takes them a while to really root out. I think they are more hurt by too much water than by too little. But uh, if you're going to plant more of them, I would do it uh, not in the middle of the winter, but in the cooler months of the year. Get them well established, and they will require very little. I mean, they, they do like to be watered
2: occasionally but they probably
1: would like about the same watering as your shrimp plants like.
2: I think you're right. I've been fertilizing them and and the shrimp plants and the firecracker so they, they get the morning sun, not the hot afternoon sun. Yeah, that's fine. The firecracker will take
1: the hot afternoon sun better than the shrimp will, but um you know, when you put that much stress on it, you've got to be that much more careful about your watering. Uh, are they are the firecrackers flowering well for you? Oh yeah. As a matter of fact I think they're doing better now when I when I fertilize them and don't water them as much. I think you're probably exactly right. Whatever you're doing, just keep it up. The hummingbirds will love you for it. Uh, for the firecracker as well as for the shrimp plant. It's uh, uh botanically it's called Roselia. Uh there is, I don't know if you know, there's a gold form as well as that orange red form. Uh, there's a form that has bigger leaves, and then the more common one has uh, smaller leaves. So there's more than one form of the firecracker plant. If you really like it, you can get some variety in there as well. Well, there's, there's, two, there's a couple of forms of the shrimp plant, also. Oh yeah, yeah. Now the the yellow plant that people mistakenly think of as shrimp. Uh, is actually an annual plant uh, called patcha but there is a yellow shrimp. It's more of a uh, kind of a greenish yellow color, uh, but it it gets ugly. It doesn't drop its old blooms, and uh, it, it's just not nearly as pretty as that coral colored one. There is a plant that is very closely related to shrimp plant, but totally different anatomically. Uh, that's called Mexican honeysuckle. It's not a honeysuckle. But it's a pretty plant with an orange-red flower. And if you're doing well with your shrimp plant, you might plant some Mexican honeysuckle. Uh, it, it's showier; uh, the color is much brighter than it is on the shrimp plant. But they're both the same genus, uh, Justicia. Uh, but that might be if you're looking to add another plant to your collection out there. Look at the SoCal Mexican honeysuckle. I think you'd love it as well.
2: I wonder if uh, Panics would have that.
1: Call them and see. Six four eight one three zero three. Not that they answer yes, their sure. phone very much. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much, Bob. You're certainly welcome. I appreciate the call, James. Thank you. Right. Well, uh Yeah, we've got time to talk to Kat before we take a break. Good morning, Kat.
15: Good morning. Uh, how are you?
1: <laughs> I'm off to a good start. It's uh, It's a little cooler, and we got to see a lot of lightning and thunder, and some folks got a good rain out of it last night, so... Kind of broke that cycle of 105-degree heat, which I'm very glad of.
15: Yeah, me too. I got a question. I was finally able to identify something called a Chinese parasol tree. Mm-hmm. I've got one on the side of my house It's like 30-foot high and, and, a, and a smaller one in the backyard. I didn't plant these. They just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, have popped up.
3: And the um, birds do are that.
15: These, are, are these trees, are they any any good. I, I don't know anything about them other than uh I don't know anything about them. Okay.
1: They're they're very soft wooded, they're not very long lived, uh they're more commonly called a chinaberry tree. But uh the chinaberries have two forms. One of them is more upright, one of them is slightly more spreading, which is one they call parasol because it's uh oh the, the canopy is more umbrella shaped. I suspect exactly, you have...
15: That's exactly what I have, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Now, again, they if they live 15, 20 years, that's a that's an old tree. I used to hate them when I lived in Dallas because uh, I managed a nursery up there that had one of them growing over a plastic greenhouse, and every time the wind blew, limbs would come tumbling out of that tree and make holes in the roofs of the greenhouse, and I'd get a call in the middle of the night to go fix them. So other than that... Uh, they're not a bad tree they uh they also in my younger life they provided some humor because they will make a lot of sort of uh oh an amber colored berry and uh or seed they stay on the on the trees and eventually they ferment and right down the three houses down from my grandfather's house where i spent a lot of time there was a big tree there, and the robins would sit up there and they would eat the berries until they got drunk on the fermented berries and fell out of the tree. <laughs> the neighbor had a wise old tomcat. He never chased He never chased birds, but I'd look out and he'd be sitting out there underneath the tree looking up, just waiting for dinner to fall from heaven and land on the ground next to him, in which case he'd grab one of them and walk out. So, anyway, oh, I,
3: nature,
1: nature is endlessly entertaining, so... Um, you've got a tree that's not, it's, it's not a good long-term tree. It's a weak wooded tree. It may get broken up if we have an ice storm, but, uh, it does have interesting purple flowers in the spring and (laughs) it's, uh, uh, it, it can provide some humor. The birds, I don't know why it is, but they wait till they start fermenting and then they start eating them. And it has somewhat the same effect that fermented beverages have on some people. So, um, uh, that's probably more information than you need to know, but that's what you're looking at. It's a China berry or Chinese umbrella tree.
15: Can I ask you one more quick question? Of course. I have a, a oh, oh, gosh, I can't even think of the name. It's the flowering tree. Um,
1: Crape myrtle? Crape
15: myrtle. Crape okay. myrtle, yes. Okay, it looks like it's more than half dead. At the top, it's got... Uh, 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 ball moss on it,
3: mm-hmm. but at
15: the bottom, it's like it's sprouting new um, new, yep. new, uh, new leaves and, s- and
1: things coming up. It's leafing. Yep.
15: Is this worth saving, or is it something I should just try to get rid of?
1: Well, it's it has nothing to do with the ball moss. Ball moss is simply using that as a place to hang on and grow. It's not a parasite. It's not taking anything away from it. Uh, Crepe myrtles. They, I I would bet you that nine out of ten crepe myrtles in San Antonio are buried too deeply in the ground. They, uh, they were buried. You know, they were planted way too deep. And over time, having that soil piled above the normal root flare weakens them, and they start having a lot of dead wood in them. They ha- it has the potential to come back and once again be a beautiful plant again. Whether it's grows as a shrub, which is its natural way, or whether you prune it and make a tree out of it. But um, they're suffering from the drought. But the first thing I would do is get out there and start digging around the base of the trunk. That trunk should, you know, flare out when it gets to the ground level. If it's a big old mature tree, uh, that, that root flare could be 18 inches across even if the trunk was only 5 or 6 inches wide. So dig down until you find where, not the little fibrous roots, but where the major roots flare out from the side and the trunk should be exposed to where it has air circulation around it all the way down to that point. And over time, that's why many crepe myrtles go into sort of a decline. Now, I'm sure the drought has something to do with it. But if you will do the root flare exp- uh, exposure, if you will fertilize, if you will water uh, there we're not going to know until next spring whether that top is truly dead or whether it's going to leaf back out again. It may just be dropping leaves because of the summer and it may come back on its own but if you like well, the plant I've, I've, as...
15: I've had this i've had it for about thirty or more years and it's never yeah. never looked like it it's well, never flourished at all
1: well i, I suspect and it's buried too...
15: no matter what i've you know like i've done that I've done to try to expose the roots and in the past, but mm-hmm. it just doesn't seem to be successful.
1: Well, in that case, I'd say it's probably time for a new crepe myrtle. The varieties we had 30 years ago are not nearly as intensely colored. They, didn't, they don't bloom over nearly as long a period of time as some of the new hybrids. Uh, if you've done everything you possibly can for this tree and it's still not cooperating, uh, wave a chainsaw at it and see if that makes it shape up. If not, you know... <laughs> I, I, I've known plants that it, no, not nah, teasing. But, uh, yeah, threaten it with a chainsaw. If it doesn't shape up, then take it out and plant a new one. And call me All when right. you're ready, and I'll give you some names of some fantastic new varieties.
15: Oh, thank you, Bob. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for the call. Okay. okay. Goodbye. All right, uh, let's get a break in here, Jimmy. We'll be right back with more phone calls.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071.
1: All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Carolyn and then Carrie. Good morning, Carolyn.
16: Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have a qu- question for you about mondo grass. Okay. I have some uh, dwarf mondo that I've had in and have babied for about 20 years now.
3: <laughs> okay.
16: And, uh, this year, it, when it started getting hot, it just turned up its heels and died.
3: Mm-hmm.
16: And I have it planted under a pecan tree
3: uh-huh. uh,
16: between stepping stones. And like I say, it has, it has done well. I mean, it's taken some babying, but it has done well. And until this year and can it just get so hot that the Mondo grass won't make it
1: well I think what actually happened is that Mondo grass suffered from the cold uh, the cold that we had this this year not 21 but this year uh, followed a very dry period and a very warm period and it's the first time that I think I've ever really seen Mondo and Liriope both uh, have some freeze damage and it got hurt hurt by that and then the super heat thrown on top of it when it was already weakened is you know why we've had some of it just quite frankly die around uh, i've also seen a few places where people put too much mulch on top of it but uh, i've i've seen several beds of mondo that uh had first cold damage and then heat damage on top of it so uh that's what i think has caused people to lose some of it this year i still think it's a good plant i I would suggest, uh, if you like it, replant. I wouldn't necessarily give up on it. I'd wait for cooler weather. I'd water. I'd fertilize. uh, See if some of it doesn't come back because I've seen it, gosh, I've seen it turn totally brown. Uh, This is when I was years ago when I was up in Dallas in school and and then seen it come right back when we got some rain and we got into cooler weather. So uh, unless it's to the point that you can go out, grab it by the top and it just all pulls free like it's rotten from the ground up then in that case it's dead but if it still feels like it's firmly attached i would not be at all surprised to see it come back out with a little bit of water and fertilizer
16: okay well i had been reluctant to fertilize it because of the heat i didn't want to Encourage well,
3: actually,
1: growth, right? right. But um, and I tell you, a liquid fertilizer like Has to Grow Plant or something like that, I think would give better results than a than a dry fertilizer would. So, when the weather gets a little bit more accommodating to get out and do things, uh, get some of Medina's new liquid fish, or get some of their Has to Grow Plant formulation. Water first, and then give them a good fertilizing with a liquid fertilizer, and keep your fingers crossed. Like you say, I'm just not ready to give up on it yet because I've seen it totally brown out in a really hot, dry summer, and yet come back when it cooled off and got more moisture.
16: Okay, well I'll I'll try that, and I appreciate that. Can I ask you one more question? Of course. Uh, when we had that big freeze, by the way, I live in Kerrville. Okay. So we're not quite as hot as what San Antonio is.
1: And you're a little colder in the winter, too.
16: Right, exactly. And uh, when we had that big freeze, I had a um, pitisporum, dwarf pittisporum hedge in, mm-hmm. and I lost that whole thing, just froze.
3: Right, Died, right.
16: and, and so I, I decided I didn't really want to go back in with that. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could suggest a, a nice evergreen, low-growing shrub, even lower if possible than the the dwarf Pittosporum, because it got <laughs> before before it was all said and done about four feet tall. I oh, think.
1: yeah, yeah, shady or sunny there.
16: Uh, well, I have a mix of both. So if if you can suggest one for shade and one for sun, that would be nice. Okay.
1: Well, uh in shady areas, two things that stay low and they're not really shrubs, but uh giant liriope is a you know, is a nice low plant. Uh the plant called holly fern, Certomium, uh is very very tolerant of many things and it gets Oh, we've got some planted here this is probably 18 to 24 inches tall. We have some plants that we planted 43 years ago that are still, you know, nice and healthy and grow well. They they suffered a little cold damage and then came right back out. But uh, you might look at holly fern. Like I say, it's not a shrub, but it's a beautiful, now, I, low, dark green plant. Uh huh.
16: holly fern in one of my beds, and right. I do like it. Now, mine uh, died... Totally back during this winter, and it it's been very slow to come out this year. I only have about three or four fawns on each plant, and they well,
1: yeah. Plants. Again, fertilize and and they will regrow better. the The one shrub-like plant, and it won't grow in deep shade, but in bright shade, there is a new variety of boxwood out there which is called Baby Gem G E M. And it grows much lower than the old-fashioned Japanese boxwood, and it grows in much lower light than Japanese boxwood does. So baby Jim okay. is is a nice evergreen shrub that you could uh, certainly consider for that area. I can tell you a number of perennials that would do, but they're going to freeze down and then come back out in the spring. They're not going to be evergreen. Uh, but the baby Jim boxwood should be evergreen for you. And uh, it's never okay. going to get over 24, 28 inches high.
16: Oh, that's super. That's perfect. All right. And then for the sun?
1: For the sun, there are some dwarf yopon hollies. There's an especially pretty one called Micron, M-I-C-R-O-N, that has tiny leaves. And it makes a, a dense mound. It loves the sun. Even the deer don't eat it. It's it's deer resistant, it's drought tolerant, it just doesn't get any insects or diseases. So I would be looking at dwarf yopon and especially this variety that is called micron holly. Uh it's gonna stay low, it's gonna like the soils in Kerrville, and it should be totally cold hardy. Okay. All right. And
16: that's M I C R O N not D
1: no C M I C R O N, that's correct.
16: Okay my crime. okay i I couldn't my hearing's not the greatest bob
1: well, my enunciation's not always perfect
16: <laughs> no, no, you're fine um it it just the hearing comes with age, I think, so anyway, well, this has been very, very helpful, and i I do appreciate it, and it's my well. strong dwarf yopon. And how tall does it get? You said the baby. No, maybe about twenty-four to twenty. And
1: that's that's about what your micron's going to do.
16: Okay. Oh, that would be great. And it it likes sun or bright shade. Is that correct?
1: No, the micron wants sun. Micron holly it wants as wants much sun as sun. you can get. Yeah, the boxwood okay. will take sun or shade, but the micron holly wants full sun.
16: Okay. Well, I misunderstood. I'm sorry. Well, I I thank you so very much, and I'll ask you one other question. Okay. Uh, Because I I know this really is kind of in Dr. Kirby's purview, too, but you used to mention something that you could use for flea control with dogs that was organic. Was it Brewer's Yeast? No,
1: that um, and that would be a question for Doctor Kirby. I I have not seen that that worked real well. Uh, there, okay. uh, we normally for flea control what we use are are uh, beneficial nematodes. And it, when the soil's really dry, it's better to wait till we have some rain. It works better with soil moisture. But the beneficial nematodes. Every time I've used them, it's been three years since I had any fleas that I had to deal with again. So I'm okay. I'm very fond of beneficial nematodes. They also take care of grub worms. They also take care of wire worms. They control fire ants. But uh, that, I, I think Dr. Kirby would be first to tell you that that's probably the best outdoor flea control you're going to find.
16: Okay. Well, what I was thinking about was uh, something the dogs on the brewer's yeast, because somebody I've, had recommended. Yeah, that. Take it internally.
1: Yeah, I've heard that but I I have not seen that that was especially effective. Um, there okay. is, you know, there are some oral uh basically organic medications Comfortis is actually uh a form of spinosad that your dogs can take orally that's great for flea control and uh it's you know it's It's just a different form of the same thing we use in the garden all the time, but uh Dr Kirby likes uh Comfortus he likes next for dogs as well, so uh
16: okay, next is what he's been on, but it yeah. was I didn't see that it was organic, but
1: well okay. no it's okay. it's not necessarily organic, but uh the only the one that Dr. Kirby does not like uh, is having the ones that combine flea control and heartworm. Because flea control products many times can give a dog an upset tummy. And if you give it to them and they get sick, well, then you don't know if they got their heartworm protection or not. So he's very big on uh, giving the flea control product one day and then HeartGuard or one of the heartworm products the next day. So uh, normally I'd tell you to call back, but he's off of continuing education this weekend. So you'll get to, (laughs) like me, you'll get to listen to a best of uh it come eleven o'clock, but uh best of my knowledge, uh, he'll be back with me again the following Sunday, so uh we'll save that question for him.
16: Okay. Well I thank you so much, Bonnie, for always a wealth of information and I do appreciate it.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here for you always, and uh you have a great Sunday. Thank you.
3: You too. Thank Bye-bye. you.
1: Goodbye. Uh Jimmy we better get a break in here and then we'll talk to Carrie and Scott.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
1: All right. Uh, my next two callers are going to be Carrie and Scott. Carrie is first. Good morning, Carrie. Hi. How are you today?
12: uh, I'm great. I've got some information uh, for you and your listeners about uh, rooting Pumaria. Okay. Okay. from Cuttings, I had heard you, I listened to like five different podcasts around the uh-huh. United States. Three of them are in Texas, one's in California, and one's in Ohio. I don't know who who I heard this from, but you can eliminate a step. You had mentioned about um, using like a black magic marker or something to put on the stem to show which
1: one is up. Right. <laughs> yes, ma'am.
12: Here's an easier way. Just remember this. If it looks like a frown, it's upside down.
1: Okay.
12: So Uh, when the leaves leaves come off of the stem, uh there's a little mark where the leaves um, Right.
1: It's called the abscission point. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh.
12: Right. So if it looks like a frown, it's upside down.
1: (laughs) That's pretty easy to remember.
12: (laughs) Yeah. It it looks like a smile. So, yeah. That'll save its best.
1: Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that.
12: I've used it many times. I always like saving time.
1: Well, plumerias are wonderful things to grow, and golly, it's just kind of like kind of like a, a vicarious trip to Hawaii to have a bunch of plumerias on your back patio. So uh, uh, it yeah. sounds like you're you're the you're a good plumeria grower, and you probably grow a lot of different colors.
12: Oh, a few, but, you know, when I take the cuttings, they're all the same.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and they all have a frown if they're upside down. I'm going to remember that. That sounds great.
12: Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks.
1: You're sure welcome. Thanks for sharing with us. Uh, We'll move on now to Scott. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Morning, sir.
8: Uh, Start off by saying thank you for what you do for the communities. Uh, yourself and and, uh, automotive show and then dr kirby all three of y'all are business (laughs) owners small business owners and all three of you promote the community and not your business and and that to me is a greater service than some of the other radio shows that are around so
1: a lot i think the three thing the three the thing that all three of us have in common is that we really enjoy what we do and uh appreciate you saying that but it's uh and you know it. Well, it, it's just the way a person ought to live their life. <laughs> I'll just say that and leave it at that. <laughs> there's some other yeah. folks on the air that haven't learned yet.
3: Yeah,
8: <laughs> <laughs> I doubt they'll ever come around. But you know, there's always hope. Yes, sir. Uh, it, it's getting time to to put pre-emergent down, and I guess one is what's your thoughts on it, and and two is there a, get uh, organic like you are. However, I am coming around to the dark side. Are away from the dark side, and uh, is there something that you would recommend that's organic or that is healthy for the yard as far as a pre-emergent? And the last question is, is, when I put it down, do I need to wait for rain? Soak it
1: okay, all good questions. Tell me, first of all, um, what kind of grass you have to begin with.
8: Uh, my neighbor has got zoysia, and I have tipway and St. Augustine. Okay, I take, and I take care of her yard. She's a she's a widow, and I take care of her yard and then mine.
1: And what are the principal weeds that you fight?
8: Uh, winter weeds. Yeah, um, are coming come up bad, and and um, I guess the the blue stem, but I I don't know how to get rid of that.
1: Okay, well, realize that as the name pre-emergent implies. Uh, they have to go down before the weeds emerge. So you're, you're putting them on and they don't actually kill weed seed. The way a pre-emergent herbicide works is that allows the seed to germinate, but then it keeps it from forming a root system. So under normal circumstances, it dehydrates and dies. Um, the problem is that whether it's, you know, one of the chemical synthetic ones or whether it's a natural one, uh, it breaks down over time. The microbes that are in the soil break it down over time. And considering that it's not killing the seed, but the seedling when it sprouts, to really be effective, uh, you're looking at probably putting it on two, three, four, five times over the winter months for it to really stop all those weeds. So um, oh, wow. okay. I, if you're looking for a natural product that does just the same thing as Bayland and some of the others uh, do, uh, then this product called corn gluten meal, not corn meal, but the protein component, uh, that is left when they take the sugar out of it is, uh, called corn gluten. And it works in exactly the same fashion at preventing, uh, the weeds. And it also, it has a lot of nitrogen in it, so it also serves as a fertilizer. But it doesn't, uh, um, you know, it doesn't, there's nothing you put down that lasts all winter long. My, personal choice, I find that compost, uh, just a good compost, tends to be the best natural pre-emergent that I've ever found, and especially after a summer like this, um, I'm highly going to be recommending to people that they, you know, top dress their yards with compost this fall. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I've got a portion, I've got a small yard and then a bigger yard and then lots of acreage, But uh, my bigger yard, we have an area we use periodically as a croquet court that's probably 30 feet wide and 40 feet long. And it was so thick with sticker burrs that the dogs wouldn't walk into it. All I did, and this has been several years ago, is I put uh, about a half-inch of good compost over that area. And the next summer, I think I pulled four sticker burrs the entire summer. And to this date, and this is probably eight or ten years later, I just don't have, you know, sticker burrs in there. I get a few dandelions, I get a few winter weeds, but uh, that compost has done more to improve the soil and at the same time eliminate the weeds than anything else I've ever done. So uh, I am more a fan of a fall application of good quality compost than I am of a so-called pre-emergence, either natural or uh, the synthetic chemical form. So. Take it what it's worth and do whatever works for you. I, I can promise you after this tough, hot, dry summer, the compost will do wonders for your yard. And I suspect it will be a, you know, a, a good pre-emergent herbicide. The other thing that I would tell you, especially on your Bermuda grass, Bermuda is one grass that always browns out in the winter. St. Augustine may or may not. Zoysia usually browns out too. If you have a sudden emergence of clover and winter grass and dandelions and henbit and all of those things that that frequently come up along with the winter grasses. Once your Bermuda has browned out, you can make a mixture of vinegar and orange oil, which is, you know, non-toxic to people and pets, but it is death to green weeds. I mean, they'll be shriveling 30 minutes after you spray. And once your Bermuda or zoysia has browned out, and if we have a real cold winter, your St. Augustine will brown out too, you can spray your vinegar orange oil mix and it will kill everything green but will not hurt your basic grass. So um in my own yard where I have things come up in the winter away from places that I've that I've used the compost, I just go out and spray it down with the vinegar orange oil mix. I've got a little one gallon pump up sprayer and I can carry that around and I can do most of my inner yard, you know, in thirty minutes. And it just totally kills everything green, all the weeds that are coming up, and yet doesn't set my Bermuda back at all. It'll come back out in the spring with no trouble whatsoever. So those are the two things that I do for weed control. And uh, I've used the corn gluten meal. It's just, it's gotten expensive. It used to be a cheap byproduct. Then some folks, especially in China, discovered that it was very good animal feed and the price quadrupled over the period of a couple of months. And... uh, I've just never thought it was uh, worth the, the cost or the worry of uh, spreading it out. But if you want to use a natural pre-emergent herbicide, corn gluten meal is what you'd be using.
8: So I have about an acre between the we're, – we're on half-acre lots mm-hmm. uh, that, I, that I have to treat or I need to
1: treat. Yeah. yeah.
8: Um, so it sounds like that orange – what is the ratio of vinegar to – and do I need to use like the commercial strength vinegar or just over-the-counter white vinegar?
1: It um well you don't want to use white just white vinegar. If you're gonna buy it at the grocery store you want pickling vinegar, which is nine percent as opposed to five percent. Tenderweeds, nine percent is strong enough. Um if you want a you know, if you're fighting anything really tough, the twenty percent you can get. You don't need to go to that thirty five percent. That's that's dangerously strong. But uh most tenderweeds, your pickling vinegar is gonna be strong enough. And the ratio is two ounces of orange oil. I like adding just a little bit of dish soap and just a little bit of molasses to it. It seems to make it work better. But uh, two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of vinegar,
8: and just regular molasses.
1: Yeah, well, like well molasses is molasses. It's uh, yeah, cheap is what counts. Uh, I I have lick feeders, I have molasses uh, lick feeders out for my cattle, and uh, when I need more molasses, I can just leave a couple of uh, jugs out there and with a note and say, hey, when you fill my 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 uh, lick feeder, go ahead and fill these, too. So it's real easy. Uh, Agriculture's fine, and that's usually cheapest. If you've got an acre that you're doing, uh, probably visit a good feed store. Or better still, if you've got a feed mill near you, like Linder's up in Comfort or something like that, uh, that's where you're going to get the cheapest liquid molasses.
8: Okay. I appreciate your time. And, oh, and, and do I need to water that in, or, or do I need to
3: nah, make sure that it's,
8: there's no rain in the future, or does that matter?
1: It would be better if there were rain in the past because a green actively growing weed is going to die a lot faster than a weed that's uh, a little drought stress. But, no, you do not need to water afterwards.
8: All right. Thank you for your service. Thanks for your time, and and enjoy your Sunday.
1: You do the same, sir. Thanks so much for the call. Thank you, bud. Certainly. Bye. All right, uh, Jimmy, let's get our last break done, and we'll have time for at least a couple more phone
0: calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071.
1: All right. Boy, these three hours has gone by in a hurry today. Lots of great questions. All just the smartest people in the world out there. And such a pleasure visiting with you. We're going to finish the show up probably with uh, Loretta and uh, Connie. Uh, We'll see how the time goes there. And Loretta is up first. Good morning.
17: Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have a question and a comment. Okay, I have a a red Oklahoma rose. And it came out from it never bloomed, so Mm -hmm. I trimmed it and then I noticed it was coming from a big root ball like. Is it possible that that was like, um, that's where it was grafted to because yes. I yes. picked it and never got roses. So do you think I would just pull it out now because
1: it's just, <laughs> oh, yeah, it
17: was so I, beautiful. I, I,
1: yeah, whatever reason, um, you know, that it died back to the graft point is hard to say. But Oklahoma is one of the prettiest red roses that was ever oh. developed. But 100% of the Oklahoma that you go out and buy are going to be grafted roses, and you're always going to have that potential. Now, once you have, if you decide to plant another Oklahoma, you can take some cuttings from that, and there's no reason Oklahoma can't be grown on its own roots. But from a rose grower standpoint, uh, they can grow 20 grafted Oklahomas uh, in, for less money than it's going to cost them to produce one Oklahoma on its own roots. So... Yeah, that's that's undoubtedly what happened. Uh, nothing's wrong with Oklahoma's rose. Like I say, that of Mr. Lincoln or two of the prettiest red roses ever developed. But uh, yours, for whatever reason, died back to the graph point and came out from the rootstock.
17: Exactly. Okay, so I know what to do with that. Then I need to ask you, my Amaryllis bloom gorgeous, you know, the ones that you have mm-hmm. always. Yeah. Um now I it finally just I do I let it get dry now and yeah. then start...
1: now, Yeah, uh well, let back off on the water, let it die back completely to the bulbs. Uh keep it dry for, you know, a month or two and then start watering again and it'll come back out and bloom beautifully for you and the whole cycle starts over again.
17: <clears throat> okay well that's what I'm doing I'm letting I let it go all the way down now I have yep. a comment about okay. your favorite <laughs> your favorite drift roses remember I, I bought a bunch of them <laughs> and babied them and you said you didn't really like the uh, foliage well Rob, right. I tell you do you know those roses are surviving here in Casterville? they're beautiful <laughs> they they have not Spread out a lot, but they're blooming, and one of them lost all its leaves, and it's coming back. I can't believe it. All that area where I have treated that rose, that bed, even mm-hmm. has big open areas. You know how it just cracks open. Oh yeah, yeah. But I have fed them, and I cannot believe how they have survived. It's unbelievable. Cool. They're beautiful. Think- they're. I-
1: I think Loretta is a really, really good rose grower. <laughs> you obviously, you obviously have the you you have found a good place for them, and you're giving them good care. Um, they're, you know, they're they're if they in the right place, like every plant in the right place, they're a good choice. Um, mm-hmm. I just they they just I, I'm I'm still hooked on the old-fashioned varieties. They just uh for me have always been tougher taking less water and taking more abuse because plants in my position I just with everything I do in life, unfortunately I don't get around to take caring for the plants perhaps as well as I should. But uh, I do appreciate the comment and uh let me go ahead and uh try to get Connie yeah, in ahead. here before the show. Uh Connie, good morning. Ask your question quickly, please.
14: Okay, um, I have moved to
11: East Texas, and so I live in Northwest Nacogdoches County. Previous owners had planted Mexican petunia plants, Uh and so there's tall ones and there's dwarf varieties, and they seem to do very well. And the hummingbirds, the the all insects, I mean, everything seems to love them. Although I I've read that they can be invasive, so I'm wondering: should I let them go and not be concerned about that? Or is it an issue, the fact that they may be invasive?
1: No, leave them alone. If you like them, let them be invasive. If you like them, that's all that matters. There's a pink form, a white form, and a purple form. There's a tall form, as you observed, and a dwarf form. They're never going to be a problem. Uh, But some people just, they'll they'll take over the whole flower bed and not leave room for other things. But if you like them, it's not something that's spread in the wild. It's not like Japanese legustrum or... You know, something noxious like that. Uh, okay. um, I I spent a year of my college life over in Nacogdoches. So you're in deep soil. You have a little sodium in your soil. But uh, you can grow a lot of things that we have trouble growing in this area. I wish we had more time. I hope you call me back sometime. But uh, I have to get out right on the second for this news break.